Dwarf elf relations in Middle-earth have always been fraught, but Peter Jackson seems determined to turn up the heat. Will past decisions come back to haunt Thranduil and Thorin Oakenshield? How will our heroic dwarves find their way out of the Elven King's dungeons? And perhaps most worrisome of all, just how much screen time will made-up character Toriel hog? We tackle these pressing issues and more on this week's episode of Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Mythgard Institute. I'm Dave Kale, and joining me as always are my wonderful co-hosts, Trish Lambert and Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Dave, people are going to think they're at the wrong podcast with that really <laughs> awesome inter- intro. Wow. Yeah, very That's good. Cool. Okay. Yeah, so you know, we've been kind of uh we've been addressing to some extent the uh the elf the you know, sort of the politics of the of the uh you know, woodland realm of Mirkwood here over the last couple episodes when we were talking about the forest in general and discussing whether or not we're going to get uh you know, a distinct zone uh surround, you know, that is separate from the dark uh the dark and scary Mirkwood. Um, where the elves live, we've been talking last week about the rescue of the dwarves and how that's going to be handled, uh, and the elves' probable involvement in that at some point. How the elves are, how the how the dwarves are going to be captured, but we haven't really uh, uh, sort of addressed how we think in the big picture the Thranduil Thorn thing is going to be handled, uh, because that's what really is going to be coming into uh, into focus, I think, during this particular portion. We have that scene, which is a wonderful scene in The, in the Hobbit, um, where Thorin is brought before the Elven King and interrogated and, and does his uh, sort of delightfully stubborn, but really quite justified... Um, you know, I'm I'm only going to say that we're starving and not going to say anything else. And it's such a wonderful way that Thorin has in the in the book, of on the one hand, refusing to give any more information than he has to give, while at the same time pointing out what a jerk the Elven King is being. Um, you know that he's instead of helping the people who are who are like approaching him to beg for help, that he's instead imprisoning and interrogating them. Um, so I mean I I think it's it's a it's a it's 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 a fun scene and similarly with uh, with Balin's um, uh, similar scene when he is the spokesperson for the dwarves when the rest of them are arrested by the elves as well. Um, so you know w- with that scene with the Thorin confronting Thranduil moment, um, you know, we, we are going to be forced, you know, presumably there is going to be uh, su- such a scene. That's gonna, that scene is going to, uh, I'm sure, going to be a major focus, given how much uh, emphasis Peter Jackson laid on the Thorin Thranduil issue. It has been in film one, I would e- even say one of the, one of the uh, sort of defining characteristics that they give to Thorin, not like one of his very most central ones, but certainly his anti-elf point of view. I mean, his antipathy uh, to all things elf, which seems to come directly from his relationship with Randuul. It's not even even specifically targeted at the the elf who is responsible. It's it's like he's an equal opportunity hater now. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he's he's he he doesn't even want to go anywhere Rivendell, towards anywhere near Rivendell, ex- explicitly because uh, he distrusts elves in general so much. Now that Thranduil, <laughs> he's like um, the he's uh, like the worst kind out. of uh, the worst kind of haven't read the book, only watched the Lord of the Rings films fan <laughs> who who doesn't doesn't distinguish between the different kinds of elves. He's just like all those elves. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. See, really, Thorne, haven't you read The Silmarillion? I mean, come on, get with the program. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, though that is, of course, itself a question to be asked here. Um, and if we can... Well, okay, I'm not going to apologize for digressing uh, from the specific <laughs> issue of Thorin and Thranduil and speaking a little bit more in general about the Wood Elves in general. It's something, if at all, are they going to be distinguishing between the Wood Elves culturally and sort of historically uh, and the rest of the Elves? And, and I ask this because, you know, in The Lord of the Rings, it, that was not maintained. Now, we only... Yeah saw two elven places. You know, we saw Rivendell and, and, and Lothlorien, and certainly there's some continuity there, but the main figure, we did get Legolas, of course, and I'm thinking of Legolas, you know, where Legolas is, like, standing up and speaking on behalf of the... I mean, he almost plays the Glorfindel slash Aristor slash Galdor role in the Council mm -hmm. of Elrond. You know, he's he's the only elf other than Elrond who speaks, as I recall, uh, at the Council of Elrond in the film. So uh, there's there, there doesn't seem to be any sense that the film introduced... And similarly, when they arrive in Lothlorien and we get the sort of the conversation between um, Legolas and Haldir, there's no sense that the film conveys that Legolas is a very different kind of elf and, uh, you know, that there is any kind of separation other than one of simple distance uh, between well, and the Mirkwood realm and the other elves. The only thing that distinguishes the, the elves from Rivendell with the other elves is hair color. Everything else is the same. So, right. And actually, Thranduil and Legolas look like the elves from Lothlorien, so there's almost an implication that they're kind of like a branch of the Lothlorien elves yes. in the movie. Yes. I know yes. in the book, Haldir says something like, uh, something like, nice to meet you. You know, I haven't really gotten to meet many of my brethren from yes. the north. Yes, or exactly. Like that, no, but, he, he does seem to, um, uh, seem to indicate or seem to speak as if there had been, you know, a very long gap between, you know, that they haven't seen right. or heard from them, that there's, that, there's a, that, there's a bit of a, that there's a bit of a gulf between the two of them. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking. Just uh, we should do. Uh, do I do a little book refresher here? This is the famous uh, paragraph from near the end of chapter eight uh, in the Hobbit that explains the difference uh, between the Wood Elves and the High Elves. The feasting people were Wood Elves, of course. These are not wicked folk. Now, that's a fascinating sentence at the beginning of that paragraph. Just mm -hmm. to clarify, you might think that the Wood Elves are wicked, but they're not. And, you know, like, why we would think they were wicked, I mean, that it, clearly he's dealing with a very different set of expectations than modern readers, I think, tend to bring to this kind of scene. Um, they were still closer to the kind of traditional fairy tales where the elves that you come up upon feasting or dancing in circles in the woods may well be malevolent uh, and interested in kidnapping children and that kind of thing. Um, so that seems to me to be why he specifies at the beginning of the paragraph, these are not wicked folk. Um, but, uh, but it's also kind of interesting in the context of his of the, the the development of Tolkien's ideas here, as uh, Trish will recall from the Hobbit class we did at Mythgard last semester, if you read the, uh, you know, in John Ratliff's The History of the Hobbit, if you read the manuscript 
of the Hobbit, you know, the first his first pass through the story, uh, the elves in general, the Wood Elves in general, and the Elven King in particular is really a jerk. I mean, they're pretty ruthless. <laughs> um, they they go they march to. I made a big deal in my book of the fact that the Elven King and the Wood Elves march with an army on the Lonely Mountain, and that they they're actually acting belligerently here, even though you know the Elf King tries to be all like, "Oh, long shall I tarry ere I begin this war for gold?" Yeah, well, you didn't tarry very long before you set off with your yeah, army. Right. Uh, <laughs> but in the in the in the original manuscript, they go with their army, the reason they're bringing their army to the Lonely Mountain is with the intention of exterminating the dwarves and taking the treasure for themselves. Uh, you know, the first time that we get Bilbo handing over the Arkenstone, he's not handing over it to them to bargain against a crazy Thorin. He's giving it to them as a ransom to spare their, his friends' lives. Like, you're here and you're laying siege to us and you plan to slaughter all these dwarves and take the treasure for yourselves. Um, but here, will you take this Arkenstone this is my whole share of the treasure. I'll give it to you if you promise to spare the lives of Thorin and the rest of the dwarves. And the the elven king and the, the elves argue against it. They don't want to even take it. Uh, the 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 ransom. So, you know, as it, even in even in the initial conception of the Wood Elves, there are some serious rough edges. So, like you know, they're not wicked folk. Um, is uh, is is sort of. A, a, a dodgy statement and and late and and late uh, coming in. If they have a fault, no, I'll carry on now. If they have a fault, it is distrust of strangers. Though their magic was strong, even in those days they were wary. They differed from the high elves of the West, and were more dangerous and less wise. For most of them, together with their scattered relations in the hills and mountains, were descended from the ancient tribes that never went to fairy in the West. There, the Light Elves, and the Deep Elves, and the Sea Elves went and lived for ages, and grew wiser and more learned, and invented their magic and their cunning craft in the making of beautiful and marvelous things, before some came back into the wide world. In the wide world, the Wood Elves lingered in the twilight of our sun and moon, but loved best the stars, and they wandered in the great forests that grew tall in lands that are now lost. They dwelt most often by the edges of the woods, from which they could escape at times to hunt or to ride and run over the open lands by moonlight or starlight, and after the coming of men they took ever more and more to the gloaming and the dusk. Still, elves they were and remain, and that is good people. Capital G, capital P. So, um, important things to see here. They are different, you know, they, they, they are quite different from the high elves of the West, which in the Hobbit context, that is in the, published, in the context of the published Hobbit, the only point of reference that we have for the High Elves are the Elves that we met in Rivendell. Um, we are, there, are the, there are only two groups of, of Elves that we meet, the Rivendell Elves and the Mirkwood Elves. And so when we are introduced to this contrast, when we meet the Wood Elves, um, I, the only thing that it seems a reader is sort of left to conclude is that the Rivendell Elves are the High Elves. But they're different. So... And of course, thinking in in using more of the Silmarillion vocabulary retro, retroactively, what we're talking about are the dark elves uh, versus versus the the light elves, the Moriquendi versus the Calaquendi, those who came back from Valinor and those who never went over to Valinor, and that's a a cultural distinction among the elves that's insisted on pretty strongly in the Silmarillion, and that's what even he's pointing to here. Say again, it's okay. 
So I think that um, this is something that's going to be, an in, to me, an interesting thing. We never really saw. We only saw Legolas. He was our only clear representative of the woodland people. Indeed, the only really clear representative of uh, of Moriquendi, of Dark Elves. Um, now, I know that in the Lord of the Rings world, um, that is in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings world, the elves of Lorien, other than Goadriel, uh, really only Galadriel, not even Celeborn. Celeborn is a dark elf. He never went to Valinor. Um, but uh, but all of the, the elves, you know, so Haldir and the rest of them um, are sort of of similar stature to, to Legolas and the elves of the wood. The only difference is that they've got Galadriel leading them. But, you know, the film, I think, certainly doesn't make that distinction. I mean, there there is no way that the film invites us to think that the situation in Lorien, uh, you know, involves people, um, uh, you know, like the, the, the Goadriel and Celeborn coming in and ruling uh, a, a group of other elves who are not connected with them. I mean, that's just, we don't have any sense of that. Um, so this seems to me to be Peter Jackson's first opportunity to depict an elf society which is, in a sense, lower, which is not high elven society, which is not... Um, you know, connected with the Noldor and the 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 you know the the elves returning from Valinor. So I'll just be very interested to see to what extent he takes advantage of that. To what extent he uh, he tries to depict that. Um, By the anyway, way, yeah. I, this it, it may have some slight bearing on the Hobbit, but this is a little bit of a deviation back to the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, I've been. I reread. I've reread. I'm rereading Lord of the Rings for my class this semester with Dr. Fleer. Actually, listening to it, which is really a pleasure. I had never done that before, and um, I realized in the scene with in Lothlorien. I mean, Celeborn actually has stature in the book. He actually mm -hmm. has a lot of speaking lines in the book. I mean, in the movie, he's really like you know minimized, almost to the point of like you know why is she even married to this guy kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was kind of like you know. He's, I mean, he's he's a personage to be reckoned with in the book. He's the one he who is. really the, leads and welcomes the, all the stuff. So I always find, I always <coughs> kind of chuckle, and it's so unfair, I shouldn't, but I always chuckle when Galadriel delivers that line about what a great lord Celeborn is and a giver of gifts beyond the, and I'm just like, that's so cute, Galadriel. Like, you know, I know. keep trying. Keep trying. You're not really convincing anybody. That, uh, you know, everybody knows that you're the one who, like, uh, really has the power here. That's right. Uh, and like how kind nobody... of you to make him believe that he's actually exactly. in charge. Exactly. I mean, it's just, you know, she's trying to be inclusive, and it's it's cute. It's really adorable. I love that that, that line. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, especially since she has to rebuke him, like she openly rebuke. You know, when he when he you know, goes like, if I had known that the dwarves had stirred up this evil again, I would not have allowed you to pass the borders. And she's like, you know, dear, uh, like, that's not really fair. And he's like, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. And then and then he says his, he, he puts his foot in his mouth again with with Gandalf. Like, One would say that Gandalf fell at last into folly and Galadriel's like, he would be he would be rash indeed who said that thing. Like I'm not saying that you would actually say such a thing, but doubtless you want to think twice about actually committing yourself to saying what you just suggested you were thinking. Um, 
So, I mean, she clearly has like some kind of active management that has to be done. Uh, uh, that is that. That actually is kind of an echo of the Thingol Melian thing in in their later. <laughs> yes, years. it is. It, it really is. O oh, King, you have devised cunning counsel. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. The, the key difference being, as you pointed out during the Silmarillion seminar, which I was recently re-listening to, uh, is uh, being that uh, that that um, Celeborn actually listens. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Ah, true. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe he's learned his lesson. Right. Exactly. Because yeah, I mean they they were both uh, spectators at uh, what happened in Doriath. So uh, yeah. Doriath. Yeah. Maybe so, just as Galadriel was clearly taking notes when watching Melian, maybe uh, Caliborn was taking notes too. So, and, uh, all right. So their escape get... making a pinky swear. You know, pinky swear. We're not going to go down that road. Let's, let's get yeah, back on yeah. track. <laughs> yes, we should. Okay. Thank you, Dave. So the point is, <clears throat> the point is, um, Thranduil and the Wood Elves, and exactly how, well, rough. I, the, one of the lines that I find, um, you know, in teaching The Hobbit, one of the lines that I find uh, many students find very striking is that reference to the Wood Elves being more dangerous and less wise. Than the high elves, um, and a question I often get is, "What does that mean? Like, in what sense are they more dangerous exactly?" Um, and my my quick answer to that is more their territory, basically. You know, they, their, their fault is distrust of strangers. We're told, um, and I think especially in the context, the immediate context is Thorin is being taken to the Elven King. This is right leading up to that interview. Um, and I think one of the points of it is to sort of emphasize the dwarves are in some very serious danger here. And actually, the fact that they are imprisoned, it might seem kind of harsh. Um, you know, like, oh, the elves have taken the dwarves and thrown them in prison without much of a trial and are holding them apparently indefinitely uh, in underground uh, uh, cells. That seems kind of hard. But actually... You know, they didn't kill them out of hand. They could have done. Um, and not only would they have been even potentially justified in doing that, but it's the kind of way that, I mean, elves are dangerous. And, you know, you don't really go wandering into elf territory and necessarily expect to survive that. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, in some ways, I think one of the, one of the emphases is that they were actually pretty generous in uh, putting the dwarves in prison rather than killing them. Um, but again, the, the, that kind of thing, like the fact that dwarves, that, that elves are likely to shoot first and ask questions later does not seem to fit with most people's idea of elves in Tolkien. Um, and so again, I'm, what I'm wondering is, when we meet Thranduil in the Hobbit film 2, um, what are we going to be getting? Are we going to be getting um, a you know, wise, remote, and benevolent elf in the mold of Elrond and Galadriel and the largely silent in the film, Celeborn? Or are we going to be getting, uh, you know, is he going to depict both a person in Thranduil and a people who are less lofty, less wise, and more dangerous? Um, you know, are we going to see that kind of a distinct difference? It's a challenge because there is such an expectation, an expectation which, of course, has been greatly increased by uh, Peter Jackson's depiction of the elves uh, in the Lord of the Rings films. If he depicts much 
sort of rougher and more dangerous and less wise elves, I think that's going to be something that's going to be probably jarring to a lot of people. Yeah, I can imagine the the film reviews now. Well, I mean, I'm thinking, like you said in the in the Lord of the Rings movies, he didn't make it much of a distinction between them. And you do get from the little that we saw of Thranduil in in the first movie, you do get a sense that he's you know not that different, say, from Galadriel or the elves of Lorien. And then you've got you know Galadriel doing her disappearing trick. I'm I'm betting actually. Um, um, Brent Sprinkles asks, so will the Wood Elves seem less kingly and lower in status in the line of Durin? I don't think so. I think that I'm I'm betting that the Elven King and Thranduil and all those guys are going to be pretty much the same as what we experienced in Lorien. He's not going to portray them as lesser or different, I'm thinking, anyway. Yeah, well, what do see, you guys think? I, I, I do agree with, in, with Thranduil's how do you say, his, his carriage, like his deportment, um, how he holds himself and moves and gestures, we only got that in a couple glimpses, but he doesn't look different. I mean, he doesn't look less regal. Um, he wasn't acting less regal um, and more kind of lowly. And right. I don't know what, like Robin Hood-like? I don't know what it would look like exactly. <laughs> but um, uh but but we we, I, we didn't see that. However, there is still the issue of the political situation. Um, and uh, 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 Stephen, I think, was asking right before we started um, that 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 homage scene. You know, when the Elf King is coming to pay homage uh, to Thror at the beginning of film one. What exactly does that mean? Is that an actual swearing of fealty? Is is he taking Thror as an overlord, or is he just paying him respect uh, as a neighbor who is worthy of respect? It would seem... I mean, my impression, when I saw the film, um, I was I was definitely under the impression that this was fealty that was being paid, that he is taking him as his overlord, which makes the <clears throat> refusal to come and assist when he's right there with his army an act not just of, of uh, you know, kind of personal betrayal, but of treason then, of actual rebellion. And, but, but I don't know. I mean, I was, it was one of the, as I said, that was, that was definitely my impression when I saw the film. When he comes and kneels down before the throne of Thror, it looked like a subject monarch paying, you know, uh, making a, a vow of fealty to an overking. And I don't, uh, I was w when I was thinking that I was a little uncomfortable. I, I was like, "How does that work? Why on earth would Thranduil um, actually swear fealty to Thror?" Um, but it might not, you know. In the end, it might not be that. Um, I, the more I've sort of thought about it afterwards, the less sure I am that that's really going to be the case. But. Um, uh, but I don't know. I mean, and then the other. Well, I know I said before, but I. I always yeah, got ahead. the impression. I'd gotten the impression when I saw that that clip, you know, that part that um, it's more the um, he's paying homage as a peer, you know, as a neighboring right. kingdom. Yes, we will, which is still bad because he's basically, you know, like an alliance saying we will, you know, succor you in 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 need right. kind of thing, and he still breaks that. But right. I always got kind of like a peer to peer kind of feel. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it didn't look like it because they actually have him kneel before the throne. Like, if 
if we had, uh, you know, Thror and Thranduil both standing, maybe Thror standing on a box, and the two of them shaking hands, um, that would be clearly like an alliance, right? Um, but if, but with Thror seated on his throne and Thranduil kneeling in front of him, it, it that's what made it look to me like an homage thing, like this, uh. you know, definitely if it is an alliance, it seemed pretty clear that the, that Thranduil was the junior partner in that alliance. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, presumably we'll get that spelled out a little bit more later on. It will, however, I think, make a big impact on the, the sort of emotional force of the conflict between Thorin and Thranduil, really like the terms of that conflict. Is this a you betrayed your king conversation? Or is this a you turned out to be an untrustworthy jerk when we thought you were our friend and our ally? I mean, those are both heated conversations, but they're different conversations. Right. And and um, and even and, 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 and I would argue yeah, that ahead, I would argue that that regardless of the specifics there it's definitely going to change it from the book. This is one of the notes I I put in the show notes for things that I wanted to cover. Um, that mm-hmm. uh, that that this is going to be a much. This isn't just sort of going to be a you know what were you doing in our lands and uh, you know yes. why aren't you helping us? We're just poor beggars wandering in the wilderness. This is going to be an intensely personal conversation. Yes, and personal. It's another thing to emphasize is that Thranduil does not know who Thorin is when he arrests him, um, and does not even necessarily. But I mean, it's again, it's an issue that is emphasized a little bit more in the earlier drafts of the Hobbit. Um, but there's a there's a reference later on that that Thranduil himself, after the fact, once he hears about the fall of Lake Town and stuff, that he's still doubting whether or not that was actually Thorin Oakenshield. He would know Thorin by name, Thorin, son of Thran, son of Thror. But remember, in the book, <clears throat> Thorin is still quite immature. Um, you know, he's still he's still only a young dwarf. You know, he hasn't he has not had his like dwarven coming of age yet. Uh, in uh, in when the when the dragon attacks, so Thranduil doesn't know him personally. Hasn't ever seen him or you know paid attention to him. I mean, he he must have known Thror. Um, but he didn't know Thorin, certainly not by sight. Whereas, you know, that personal exchange, that eye contact exchanged between Thranduil and Thorin um, at the fall of Erebor in the film absolutely suggests this is not going to be even just sort of a broader political issue. This is going to be very personal between the two of them. And it leads to... It makes the whole kidnapping and or not kidnapping, but it makes the whole capture and imprisonment of the dwarves a much bigger deal, and certainly under any circumstances, a very different deal. Um, he knows who Thorin is. He can't pretend. He's not going to be like you are some vagabond dwarves who can't give an account of themselves. That's not the situation. Like he's going to know that's Thorin Oakenshield. Why is he holding him in prison? I mean, that by itself, it's so big. Then, how is Thranduil going to justify the imprisonment of Thorin, knowing full well who he is? He might not help him. You know, he might decide to, but to actually say, ah, Thorin, I remember you. Um, you are the lawful heir of your father. Uh, the jail with you, you know, a cell for you. That's yes. um, a very different choice. Um, now, I don't think... 
in saying that, I, I don't believe that that means that Peter Jackson's going to back off from it. I think it's still going to happen. Um, because I do think, as I think I said last time, I believe that in the end, uh, you know, the reconciliation of, the, you know, when Thorin and Thranduil are ultimately reconciled, which I believe they will be probably during the Battle of Five Armies, as pretty much happens in the book, um, but uh, when that happens, I believe that it will <clears throat> it will come to be seen uh, early by the viewers and later by the characters uh, that you know there's this the whole thing was based on uh, you know misinterpretations and misunderstandings. But um, uh, but anyway, things are going to, as I said, as I predicted last time, I, I suspect that in film two, things are going to get worse before they get better uh, in film three. So I think that the imprisonment is going to be part of that. Like, And uh, Thranduil throwing Thorin into prison is the low point of their relationship, and uh, things will only go up from here. So, But it does mean, I mean, again, that conversation, uh, as you said, Dave, is going to be pretty feisty, one would have to think. Yeah, I, I I think it's uh they're they're really sort of turning up the the as I said in my intro they're he's trying to turn up the heat on the conflict between them and that yes. I think I think those um however the throne room confrontation scenes go whether there's two of two separate ones for Thorn and Balin or whether it's just right. whether they're all together whatever we get to see I think is going to be highly dramatic um and uh and I and I imagine that they will skip quickly from sort of, hey, what are you doing wandering around in, in our wilderness to, to, to dredging up kind of old uh, old history and old grudges and those sorts of things. Right. Um, that, that, yeah, that's going to be the main the, focus of that conversation. That's a fascinating... Which, which actually for me brings too. up two things. One is, um, how is that going to, you know, how is that going to play out in the legalist, you know, deal? And second... Um, I'm thinking that the the more this you know enmity between Thorin and Thranduil uh, gets played up, that'll get used to enhance the relationship between Thorin and Bilbo in some way. Mm. Hmm, yes, <clears throat> or or it could go the other way. Um, uh, that is, I could easily see. And of course, here I'm thinking uh, when I'm when I'm thinking of the Bilbo Thorin relationship, <clears throat> I I continually have in front of my mind their final confrontation, both the deathbed reconciliation and the descendant of rats confrontation on the top of a wall. And I assume that the relationship between Thorin and Bilbo is going to move in a general descendant of rats direction. At some point or other, you know that that kind of uh, negative conflict is going to happen between Bilbo and Thorin, and I'm wondering if this might not be the beginning of it. That is, Bilbo stepping aside, and he's you know he's a third party here, right? You know he's uh, he could be the one who sees or understands. Like, gosh, actually, you know, maybe the Wood Elves are not evil incarnate as Thorin seems to believe. Um, uh, and and basically have Bilbo sitting there looking at Thorin and being like, "Gosh, 
actually, look, you know, Thorin is kind of a like a rash, prejudiced jerk about this, and and seems wholly unassailable by reason uh, when it comes to this. Like uh, basically, that we see Thorin's. Uh, Ugly side there, uh, coming out, and Bilbo getting concerned. I mean, I can, I can, I could see that basically not drawing the two of them closer together in opposition uh, to Thranduil, but having Bilbo's observation of Thorin's reactions to Thranduil be one of the things that first introduces the distance between yeah. Bilbo and Thorin. I, th- I think you're right about that because I, I think, I think that just you know, watching, so watching that scene. Um, uh, I guess I shouldn't speak for, for, uh, the audience in general, but I know I personally watching that scene on the one hand, I sort of immediately, and, and by that scene, I'm referring to the scene where, where, um, uh, Thranduil astride his moose elk makes the decision yes. not to, to intervene. Uh, you know, on the one hand, I sort of in my in my sort of riddles in the dark uh, hat, where I'm constantly doing meta analysis instead of enjoying the film, um, <laughs> I immediately recognize like, oh, that's going to be a source of conflict later. But but sort of it, from a personal standpoint, I'm looking and thinking that's probably the right thing to do. There, nothing good can come of uh, uh, riding down there and trying to to intervene with the dragons. I mean, I don't understand why. Uh, and and I understood the reasoning that the the narrator mentioned, which is you know he didn't want to risk the lives of his soldiers. Although I, I don't understand why that stopped him from doing sort of a humanitarian mission of like helping the dwarves escape, but but whatever. Right. But um, I I have this sense that that when they start getting into the, there's probably going to be a conversation. Why why Thorin? Why do you have so much trouble getting along with these elves? What's your deal? And then he will explain. Right. And I have this sense that Bilbo, being the the uh, sort of the um, uh, the reasonable person that he is, will more than likely look for common ground or will sympathize some up with the elves. You know, we'll say like, well, what would you have done if the positions had been switched? Would have you taken your dwarven armies in to help the elves or whatever? So I I think you're right. I think Bilbo will almost certainly. Uh, not if not sympathize with the elves, he will at least sort of understand their point of view, and he will try to reason with Thorin, and that probably won't be taken well. Well, I, I mean, I do get that. I, I do agree. I think I could see that as like a, it's going to be like a mini foreshadow of what Bilbo, uh, the role Bilbo takes at the Battle of Five Armies. But I do think, I think it's going to be too early in film two for this kind of crack to appear in their relationship. I mean, from what I've seen of interviews and from what I kind of have inferred in terms of how Jackson's going with this thing, starting with the big hug at the end of film one, is in my mind film two is going to be about building up this really tight relationship between the two of them because then the betrayal in film three becomes all the more devastating as far as Thorin is concerned and, and will justify Thorin's, you know, somewhat anyway behavior toward Bilbo. So I just think it's going to be too early in the film two for this kind of crap to appear. But I do agree that you know, what, with what Dave just said, in that it could be a foreshadow of what, how Bilbo, you know, Bilbo's stand in the third film will be about the Battle of Five Armies. Yeah, well, I mean, and thinking, thinking, and again here in book terms as well, one of the things that really emerges uh, in the Elven King's Halls in Chapter 9 is the gap between Bilbo and the dwarves in a big picture sense. That is the way in which his value system remains different. I mean, there has been, he has felt since chapter one, the desire at least to get acclimated to the dwarves. Well, at least part of him wants to do that. He wants to live up to Gandalf's 
recommendation. You know, he want he can't bear the thought of returning from the trolls. Um, uh, you know, without having even attempted anything burglarious, because he's worried what they're going to think about him. We see this desire to sort of fit in, but he, by chapter nine, he is uh, he is fully operating as a professional. I mean, he's made his bones, he's good, but he hates it, and he's really unhappy and just still wants to go home. Um, and that kind of the gap between what Bilbo values, what he cares about, and how he looks at things, and Thorin's, uh, and not just Thorin's in particular, really all of the dwarves, is something then that gets more and more emphasized. So then in chapter 10, he, they get to Lake Town, and all the dwarves are all about it, right? The people in the Lake Town are throwing small children in the air and singing prophetic songs, and the dwarves are strutting around like they've already conquered the world, right? And just sort of like waving to the crowds, and Bilbo is miserable. And Bilbo's like, this is, this is stupid. I hate all of this uh, because he's still remembering there's this dragon that we still have to go up and face. And, and this is all really silly uh, how the dwarves and the lake men are carrying on. And then in chapter 11 at the back door, we see Bilbo is continually out of sync with the dwarves. And it's, it's that his being, his discomfort, connect from the dwarves, which is the thing which is ultimately expressed in his handing over of the Arkenstone. Um, you know, that he is not tracking with them. He does not think about things the same way they do. He does not react to things the same way they do. And his reactions in the book, his reactions are generally right, and the dwarves are generally wrong. When they disagree, it's Bilbo who's right and the dwarves who are wrong uh, pretty much every time. Um, and so that's what I'm wondering if we're going to get a similar thing there, even if it's maybe they won't actually fight. Maybe they won't, you know, we won't actually see, as you said, Trish, sort of actual cracks in their relationship. But, but I think in their perspective, um, and, uh, you know, because it's really hard for me to imagine Bilbo getting all behind the, like, elf hatred that Thorin has going on. Um, uh, you know, that's that's kind of difficult for yeah, me to imagine. So, so I don't know. But but again, I, I, this is to me, you know, because in many ways, uh, in the larger picture of Bilbo's development as a character, it's the it's the time in the halls of the Elven King, which is a which is a major turning point in these two different ways. It is the point at which he is officially a successful professor can question whether or not he's a good burglar when he has uh, entered and exited at will the magical uh, hidden hall of the elves and is living there uh, off of his burglary skills undetected for weeks um, I mean that's you talk about what you know like truly legendary burglars would be able to accomplish I mean that's pretty darn good um, so nobody can really question Bilbo's competence as a burglar at this point his skill as an adventurer but yet his own values are cemented there his Baggins values are cemented in his time there um, so I'll be interested to see uh, it's 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 very difficult for me to imagine that Bilbo's character and even his relationship with Thorin are going to be sort of static through this. Yeah, um, well, that's, that actually... that's a good that's a good point, Corey, because because what we see in the book is 
what we see in the book is this is where he finally gains acceptance, but only in terms yes. of in terms of skill set. And and right. in the in the book, motives and intentions and character don't really come up until later. But there there is kind of this multi stage process where at first they reject him entirely based on his skill set, and then he proves himself skill wise. And then there's just an assumption like, all right, well this guy's at least useful. And and then there's sort of they, there's a lot of action with the barrels and escaping and all that, um, and it's not until Lake Town and then the um, the entrance into the the Lonely Mountain and uh, the treasure where the dwarves decide that they don't like him again, but not because of, not because he's not competent, but because that he you know he's just not aligned with them in terms of goals and values, as you say. And I can see in the film. You know, like, I don't, I think actually they try to, they, they're sort of doing something a little different where, where, you know, he proves himself at the end in terms of competency by saving Thorin. And I think that's largely why Thorin embraces him. But he also, yeah. you know, he attempts to win them over with his thing about home. But I think what we'll see is that as time goes on, he will start to look like he's out of alignment when the when, you know yes. uh, that that when it becomes clear that the dwarves are sort of it's less it's less that Bilbo becomes out of alignment with them but more it becomes clear that they're not in alignment with him that that yes, this stated right. goal of reclaiming home and 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 all these noble things they want to accomplish that that's not just what's going on that there's there's a lot of things about revenge that that Thorn refuses to leave behind that there's you know also the the sort of the desire for the treasure and wealth and power that 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 haven't really come up that have been de-emphasized so so it's actually and I and so I think I kind of agree with you that I think there'll be a smooth transition I don't think it's going to be quite as sort of a hard line as you know film 1 is about improving himself film 2 is about how great friends they are film 3 is where where the cracks start to show I think I think they'll start yeah. laying the groundwork here and they'll be I a actually transition think I just don't think they'll do it as this early in the film. I would expect to see the cracks to show once they get to the Lonely Mountain. I mean, I do think we're going to see some of that divergence of values. And, you know, as much as I'm annoyed to admit it, the dragon sickness may show up, <laughs> you know, in, in the second film. But I think yeah. it won't be until we actually get to the Lonely Mountain, you know, that we'll start to see that. So I'm my only point is I just think that Elven King's Halls will be too early in the story well, for us to start to see that. It depends on what you mean by cracks. Like if what, you're, if what you're arguing against is, well, I don't think they'll start um, uh, getting into arguments and fighting with each other at this point. You know, that may be true. But I think that – I think that – it's it's just basically too rich. There's too good an opportunity here not to address this issue, not not to portray Bilbo as more sympathetic to the elves than Thorn would like, and to and to show that on screen and to show the characters recognizing that we're not on the same page here, and and maybe the decision will be well that's okay you know like look you know like maybe what Bilbo will say is look this is we shouldn't you know we shouldn't be getting into this. The main thing is regardless of whatever is going on in the background, we still got to. Escape. So we should focus on that. And Thorne will be like, all right, we should focus on that. But it's just too rich to not lay the groundwork. Because if they do that, then later in the film, when Bilbo steals the Arkenstone and hands it over to the elves, Thorne's going to be like, see, you know what? I knew all along you liked these people. Like all the way back to when we were in their dungeons, you, you were still sympathizing with them and that kind of stuff. And if right. they, it, it'd right. be a missed opportunity if they don't sort of 
lay that groundwork. Yeah. Well, see, I don't think I'm disagreeing with you there. I think what I was right. just addressing is I just don't think we're going to see a really overt. I think what mm-hmm. you just said is probably right. You know, there'll be like a passing disagreement, but then they'll reunite under the banner of let's get out of here. Yeah. It's just, you know, the, the Thorin's only really just gotten over his distrust of Bilbo and to start to reseed it this early in the movie, I don't see it, but I could see a disagreement, you know, which then, like you just said, when he's in the throes of dragon sickness and, and Bilbo betrays him like that, he'll say, you've been on their side, you know, he'll go all yeah, paranoid yeah. and stuff. I could on their side all along. <laughs> right. You were a double agent from the beginning. Um, I, right, I, right. It, 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 it could also simply be one of perspective. That is that the audience, Bilbo and the audience, and Bilbo as sort of the mediator of this to the audience, um, begins to see things in this other way. And that way in which we and Bilbo are invited to look at the elves in particular um, is very different, you know, is, is in conflict with how Thorin talks about them. So they, the two of them don't even have to disagree to have any right. kind of argument for right, cracks right. to appear in Bilbo's um, uh, sort of uh, understanding and perspective right. of, of Thorin. So maybe the characters don't recognize to... it, it's, but the... Right, uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. But, but it's the, that, that groundwork is still laid for us. Uh, two things that I would want to, uh, to, to emphasize, picking up on, uh, Dave, some of the things that you were just saying. One, the distance between Bilbo and the dwarves. Um, <clears throat> this is one thing that I think is pretty clear that Peter Jackson is going in a different direction from the books. One of the things that we see happening, I actually didn't talk about this too much in my uh, in my book, but um, one of the things that you can see happening... Oh, good, you left the... material for the next book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> one of the gaps between... Um, though, again, this is something, this is the kind of thing, like, I didn't really think about this as much until I saw the film and noticed this difference. Um... Uh, and this difference really drew my attention to the way that it is, that it's done in the film. One of the gaps between Bilbo and the dwarves at the end is that Bilbo clearly sees the dwarves first and foremost as his friends. He is loyal to them as friends. He accepts them as friends. The dwarves still, all the way through, um, at least through the Battle of Five Armies, still see Bilbo fundamentally as the hired help. Yeah, as the burglar. Right. He's, and and th- th- that doesn't mean that they see him as a servant, but rather that they see him as a, a contractor, like a subcontractor. Um, you know, and we can see this. We see this when, to, um, when they get to the Lonely Mountain and they start grumbling like, well, since uh, our bur- – you know, what's our burglar doing for us? Since he has a, 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 an invisible ring uh, he should, and should be a specially excellent performer, maybe he should go in through the front gate. You know, they, they, they see him, you know, and then, of course, Thorin's big speech when they open the, the, the secret door, and he's like, now it's time for Bilbo to earn his reward, right? Our burglar, who has been a, a, an excellent companion along the way, is now time for him to perform the function for which he was included in our party. Um, and Bilbo gets all grumpy and and um, echoes Thorin's formal language uh, in a sort of at least a half mocking way. Uh, and what he's what he draws attention to is actually I've kind of been more than your hired burglar. I've been a bigger part of things along the way, and I would have thought I'd. But anyway, he's he's okay. It's not like he gets really offended. It's not like it's a really big deal. But. Um, but but that card is always being played by the dwarves when Smaug is gone in the not at home chapter when they're going down and what you know and Bilbo says hey uh, let's um 
let's go in and uh, can I have a torch? Let's let's light torches. And the dwarves are like, are you crazy? We're not going to light torches. If uh, the dragon is hiding around, he'll see us. And you know, Thorin's like, well, if our burglar expert uh, would like a light, then that's up to him. Uh, we'll leave that to his discretion. But we're not doing it. Um, so I mean, anyway, we, we can see this all the way through. But Bilbo, remember the, the conversation at the end of chapter 16, of the uh, Thief in the Dark chapter, the Arkenstone handing over chapter. Um, Bilbo's choice to return to the dwarves after he hands over the Arkenstone, when the Elven King tells him, I know dwarves may be a little bit better in general than you do, and I think it would be a pretty bad idea for you to go back to them after you've done this. You should stay with us, and Bilbo won't hear of it. Um, and he, 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 he's got to go rejoin his friends. Um, and his decision to stay personally loyal to Thorin and to the other dwarves, even while he is acting against them, certainly in a way that he knows they will interpret as acting against him and handing over the Arkenstone, shows his point of view and how his point of view is different from theirs. Now, that's what we see in the, in the book. As I said leading into this, this is not how it's happening in the film. And I think it's very clear at the end of film one that, that what is accomplished uh, after the... Uh, the out of the frying pan into the fire fight at the end of film one is Bilbo being accepted as one of the guys by Thorin. You know, that Thorin talks about, you know, how he values loyalty and a willing heart and all that stuff. And that he, he clearly accepts all of the dwarves who have, who have chosen to come with him. Many didn't answer the call, but these, you know, 12 other dwarves did, and he, you know, loves them and is loyal to them and accepts them as, you know, as brothers. And um, so what, what, I, what I felt that we were definitely getting at the end of film one was, in Thorin's mind, now Thorin has included Bilbo in that. He no longer views Bilbo as an outsider. Bilbo is now one of the gang, one of the loyal group who is going to... So I, I don't think that that he's the hired help thing is going to be there at all, but it is going right. to make just as the conflict with Thranduil has got to be more personal in the film than it was in the book, so too the sense of betrayal uh, by Bilbo at the end is going to be a lot more personal than um, it was. Because again, it's right. still clear in Thorin's mind that he's the hired help. So at the end when you're like, oh, you know, basically one of the subtexts of Thorin's uh, anger at Bilbo um, you know, in the Descendant of Rat scene is basically like, you can't get good help these days. Like, see, like, this is what I'm all about, right? You know what I mean? You know, like, we hire a burglar, you know, that, remember this one, you know, you, you burglar, <laughs> right? right. He calls him that up on the, up on the wall. Um, anyway, this is, you know, it's not a, like, I trusted you, you betrayed me. That's you're not how Thorne talks right. on that, the wall. That scene's going to be much more visceral, isn't it? Much more. Much more. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, th th you know, uh, I'm still assuming that that's going to happen, that that's what we're leading up to, um, and that the sort of the, the perspectives on this and the, uh, the perspectives I think is going to be crucial, that I expect the film, the, you know, one line that I expect the film, the film to walk is to maintain our sympathy with Thorin. Um, at that his point of view we're gonna you know is going to be still evocative you know that we're not going to get a um you know thorin has gone off the deep end and we can no longer really relate with thorin at all 
which almost happens in the book. I mean, when when Thorin rejects their uh, their proposals and refuses to talk to them and is uh, even beginning to contemplate, you know, swindling them and uh, you know double dealing and dishonest practice that's the point at which Bilbo's like alright something has to be done here because Thorin is inaccessible by reason or even honor at this point um, I, 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 I would doubt that Thorin is going to sort of devolve to quite that point in the, in the, in the film interesting but oh wait, there's another thing that I wanted to say. Another sort of related subject, and Dave, this is connected directly to what you're saying, I've, which I think is a is a really great construction, and uh, um, is is very likely to be played up. And that is, Dave, when you were emphasizing um, Bilbo's speech on home, and how he personally is connecting in value, you know, value wise with the dwarves' quest. You know, you're you've lost your home and I'm going to try to help you get it back, right? You know, that speech that he makes after, after they escape from the mountains. Um, that, I think, is something, a way in which Peter Jackson has set things up where he can bring in the Baggins values in what I think is a really, could be a really powerful way. And that is, um, Bilbo's first step is to recognize the dwarves' need. You know, basically how how much he takes for granted. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of the retroactive poignancy it gives to his earlier statement, I am a Baggins of Bag End, right? Um, when he's saying that he won't go, and that's the reason he won't go, because he's a Baggins of Bag End, and it sounds at the time just really stuffy. But in retrospect, after he makes that home speech, you can see he recognizes how much he's taking that for granted. You know, that he has that kind of home, that he has that kind of identity. Uh, and that the dwarves have lost that identity um, and have because they have lost that home, and so he 's going to try to help them he 's going to uh, to go outside of his he 's going to leave his home behind in order to come and help them to recover their home and that 's great. But what I think we could see is that it may become clear to Bilbo that home to the dwarves doesn't mean the same thing that home to him does. You know, that, uh, that that whole concept of what their identity is and what their home is um, may look very different, indeed unrecognizable to Bilbo um, once he actually comes to see it more. The connection with the treasure. You know, how focused they are on treasure so much more than Bilbo is focused on any particular material things, though we do get that business about his doilies and his <laughs> China and everything uh, uh, in film one. But um, And actually, interestingly, but, Gandalf comments on that. Exactly. Right. Right. Gandalf sort of points out that maybe maybe, you know, that's sort of a setup for, you know, some kind of personal context for, uh, you know, basically that he will recognize like, oh, my goodness, like in a really lame and pathetic way. I was kind of like I had dragon si I, had, I had dragon sickness doily about sickness. my doily, you know, <laughs> doily sickness. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh so that, but there's not only the treasure element, there's also the political element. There's also the power element, right? You know, and, and especially coming back to Thranduil, which we've wandered a little bit far afield from this, but coming back to Thranduil, um, that, that really comes into effect here as well, that part of what having their home and reestablishing their home means to the dwarves and certainly to Thorin is reestablishing his position and his political relationships um, really his political superiority to people like Thranduil 
and the lake men. Um, and it would be easy to imagine Bilbo being a little bit uncomfortable with that right. element of it. You know, I must reestablish my sovereignty is not necessarily part of what he's bargaining for when he says, I'll help you get your home back. Yeah, get, getting going home and reclaiming home um, uh, in the in the Baggins hobbit sense uh doesn't include reestablishing your your position and and your dominion over other people right. it doesn't involve right. it doesn't involve um uh selfishly hoarding treasure and not helping your neighbors who are in desperate need yeah right. that's that that's that's a that's a very interesting uh that's a very interesting uh, sort of it's a very interesting i don't know what the word for it would be but sort of a trajectory that the peter jackson yeah. is lining things up on yeah i mean and it would be really cool if he does that i said i think it would be a great way to basically bring in the the whole bag inside you know what happens with bilbo and how prominent and how how important his bag inside is and basically could then be the setup for the deathbed scene with thorin right. um at the end and thorin's recognition of those values but as i say we're we're we've we're wandering a little rather farther far away from from now from, i have two know. points you ready for okay. my two points Okay. Yeah. So one of these, Doug Graham brought up, by the way, Doug, who I believe is a new uh, attendee. And That's right. I, I believe he's the person that Yana mentioned. Yes. Uh, welcome, Doug. Um, he actually asked a question that's sort of similar to what I was going to bring up, which is he asked, do you think they will heavily play up the connection between Legolas and Glowin, and what sort of dynamic do you think that will play by uh, play in Jackson's version of The Hobbit? I... I want to kind of modify that just a slight bit, which is to a broader question, which is how do we think Jackson's going to portray Legolas interfacing with the dwarves? As I recall in the movie, in, in Council of Elrond, he's still not particularly pro-dwarf in yes. the movie, right? Yes. So, you know, Dave and I kind of talked about this off, you know, the other day. It's like how how do we expect to see Legolas's take on the dwarves be in The Hobbit? Right. You know, is he going to worry about continuity, or is he going to be more? Um, yeah, we have a. There's a very similar uh, question. Sympathetic. There's a very similar question for Legolas uh, that a question regarding Legolas that's very similar to the one we addressed with Saruman, which is um, Legolas was Legolas like Saruman is is portrayed in a certain way in the film uh, in the Lord of the Rings films. Is that a certain point such that? If they slavishly follow that, there's almost no room for character development in this film. So, so obviously, right. what would be really interesting to do with Legolas to have him start to sympathize with the dwarves, maybe even participate in their escape. But that doesn't jive too well with Legolas from the film. Right, from his starting point. Yes. In the film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah right. Obviously, where he where he ends right. up, it's like completely makes sense. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, no, that is challenging. What one of the things that I kind of wonder? Um, I, here's the middle ground I might expect, because um, I think that you could establish a middle ground with Legolas there. Um, that is not to have him interacting much with the dwarves personally, um, and not having him certainly establishing any relationships with any individual dwarves, but him having some, if in fact Thranduil is going to be depicted as some kind of anti-dwarf jerk in the film, which I'm not assuming he will, 
but that would be one way Peter Jackson could take his character. That we could have Thranduil being like, ah, this is our perfect opportunity to like rid ourselves of dwarves forever. I'm going to throw them into prison and maybe execute them later or something. And Legolas saying, we shouldn't do that. That's not right. These people were our allies. We should help them and not imprison them. One could imagine that kind of divide between Thranduil and Legolas. I have to assume there's going to be some kind of drama between Thranduil and Legolas. Um, you know, that they're not just going to be marching in lockstep the entire time. Um, if so, so one could imagine him being kind of generally pro dwarf like on principle or rather anti his anti any 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 sort of right negative so, or he's, anti so he's not sympathizing with the dwarves per se he's just right. he's just against being a jerk exactly that 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 he wouldn't consider himself a friend of dwarves or certainly of any particular dwarf um but yeah that he is uh, of like a, a more benevolent disposition, which will lead him to be open to becoming Gimli's friend later on. I mean, I, so I could imagine that kind of middle ground. Um, I don't know. Um, as far as... or or that or that he he's kind of not in favor of his father taking any kind of rash action. You right. know that maybe that is another thing that Thrand, like we said earlier, Thrandall may just get ticked off and say to the dungeon, you know, and like right. is like, God, you always do that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> what is with you in the dungeons? <laughs> no, you're just you're just such a hair trigger, God, Dad. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> How many is that this month? <laughs> <laughs> now. Yeah. I I don't know if we're done with this topic, but I could introduce my second one, which is slightly different, and then you could see what you want to do with it. Sure. What do you say? Okay. Sure. So the second one, I've actually craftily, there may actually be two things in this one, um, but Bilbo's activities in the Elven King's halls, um, you know, in the book, as you said, it's weeks and weeks and weeks is where he kind of gets his, you know, gets his, makes, it gets made as a, as a burglar, but with, you know, logic and also what we've seen of Jackson, we could assume, I think, safely that this that time is going to get compressed significantly. Yeah. So, you know, what do we think about the time compression? What do we think about Bilbo's use of the ring? I think Bilbo using the ring would be uh, our way of being able to see the Thorin-Thranduil interaction that puts Thorin in the dungeon because if we're with Bilbo and he's got the ring on, he's going to be an invisible, you know, observer. So I, I guess the big question is how do we see Bilbo in the Elven King's Halls be different from what we know of in the book? Uh, I agree compression, um, which is kind of a fun trend because, uh, um, you know, in, again, in, in, in Tolkien's first conception of The Hobbit, um, the time frame was much longer. It took them more than a year to travel from Bag End to the Lonely Mountain, and they were imprisoned in the Elf King's Halls for like more than six months. Um, and then when he revised it, he shortened that time period so that now, uh, you know, in the published Hobbit, they're only imprisoned for what seems like weeks instead of months. And so now in the Peter Jackson film, they'll be imprisoned for hours, not weeks. But, um, I, you know, I don't know, or days maybe. Um, it, so the, it will be certainly be compressed. Um, how they will handle visually, how they'll handle Bilbo's invisibility, I think is 
easy enough because he doesn't have to be invisible all the time. I mean, presumably, I mean, if I were sneaking, or even if I had an invisibility ring and I were sneaking around in, in the Elven King's halls for weeks on end, I probably wouldn't spend a whole lot of time just sitting around in occupied rooms. You know, I would, <laughs> I would probably go somewhere where there weren't that many people. Uh, and if you are in a, like a, a, a closed room with nobody there, you could probably afford not to have your ring on the whole time. So, I mean, I would imagine that some of the time we, you know, he will only turn it on when somebody actually comes, you know, by him and that won't necessarily be all that often. And if he does overhear conversations, which I agree with you, Trish, I would expect that we're going to learn a lot about the elves um, from Bilbo's point of view that, you know, the, uh, the opportunity for him to overhear conversations while he's invisible is going to be, I think, far too great for Peter Jackson to not make use of that. Um, but you would it, definitely take the ring that... off uh, if your choice was to spend your whole time in ring vision. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, that would, uh, yeah really... that's what Dave was saying. For God's sake, I hope he takes the ring off so we don't have to spend it in ring vision. Yeah, yeah. Well, and... see, but I, I, I don't think that even if he's overhearing an entire conversation while he has the ring on, I don't think that that means that we, the audience, have to see the whole conversation happening in ring vision. Right, that's true. We can in just get vision. an occasional yeah. flashback to Bilbo standing there in ring vision, overhearing yeah. it, and then the you know the scene can sort of flash back <laughs> to normal vision of you know are looking at it. Which which actually reminds me of another thing that Dave and I talked about the other day. When do the dwarves then find out Bilbo's got the ring? Because in the book, they find out after the spiders, right? Before the elves capture No, no, them. don't anticipate it. We were going to do an episode on this. Oh, okay. <laughs> that will be another episode. On the dwarves Sorry. and the ring? That's, well, that's the Bilbo and the ring episode. Yeah, that's Bilbo a teaser for our listeners. On our docket, okay. we have a, we have, we'd like to do another Bilbo and the ring episode. And one of the, one of the sort of, one of the candidate riddles would be how will Bilbo reveal the ring to his companions? Oh, that's right. That's what right. do you think? Gosh, Dave, Corey, sorry. Is that, Corey, is that is that worthy of an episode and a riddle, or should we just knock it out here? Yeah, no, that's cool. We can, no, I I think think we can at least combine it with a couple other things. But yeah, no, I think it's a good riddle, actually. Yeah, Very especially good, since you remember in Jax's interview, he talked about the ring having like a cumulative effect over time. So I think right, right. there's more to talk about, and I think it's Definitely. episode worthy. Thank you, Dave. See, this is why you have to be in on these things, because otherwise I would completely ruin it. <laughs> yes, you're just going to go down our our list of, of riddles, just bring it I up know. and talk about it for two in minutes. And it's like, yeah. no, we have to make new ones. <laughs> No, that's good. So that's but a I, teaser for our listeners. We yes, will be right. doing a Bilbo Dude, we have some really episodes. good riddles queued up. Uh, and and actually, yeah, this yeah. is an aside, which we'll address at the end of the episode. But we also anticipate a whole bunch of riddles coming out of the uh, the preview this weekend. Right. Right. So anyway, yes. so, 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 so I think we generally agree that probably Bilbo won't be invisible the whole time. Uh, right. Um, but but the time compression is an interesting thing. I, I'm sort of expecting a Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows type thing here. You know how they spend um, months planning their their uh, attack on the Ministry of Magic, and in the film, it's yes. like they arrive at they they arrive at Grim Old Place, and then they're like the next day they're sneaking in. They just like yes. came up with that whole elaborate plan uh, overnight. I, I'm kind of thinking we're going to see something similar here, where the, the dwarves start breaking out almost immediately. Yeah, no, I would assume so too. I mean, the uh, um, uh, just as there was also a vastly insufficient quantity of camping in the Deathly Hallows films, um, 
<laughs> I mean, in order really to convey the experience of reading the book, you'd have to have them camping for like four hours. <laughs> you'd have to, yeah, uh, an entire two movies. Of oh, camping. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> having I, I've just reread that book and rewatched that film, both of them within the last like three. To oh, six my gosh. Years. No, that, that is a, an issue very fresh in my mind. But anyway, um, uh, uh, with my son, Nicholas. So, um, uh, okay, anyway, what I was saying was the time compression in the uh, Elven King's Halls. How but wait, much... wait, I have to ask. So when you oh, do well, that, yeah. do you, you actually engage Nicholas? I mean, do you actually kind of like go into lecture mode with Nicholas? So look at this. Did you notice anything about the book versus the movie? Do you do that with your son? Yeah, we do. One of the things that he is really fascinated by was what what is changed. So we will talk oh, about okay. like you know, he, okay. he, and, he, and he's and he always impresses me with his memory for detail in the book. I mean, there are always things that he will notice um, that uh, you know, like when when we say like, what are some things that they skipped from the book that they didn't put in the film, um, and uh, you know, the things that the even some of the very small things that he remembers, like things like. Dumbledore was not wearing the right color robe, uh, for instance. Um, wow. Because, of course, <laughs> wow, Dumbledore that's... always dresses in, in outrageous colors uh, in, in, in the book. Uh, but anyway, um, so, so we, we <laughs> well will sometimes done. talk about it. But I don't, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't lecture him very extensively when we do this. <laughs> but, um, anyway, uh, so uh, uh, the Elven King's Hall. So... Um, one of the things I think that's going to determine uh, really, because it's all about utility, like on screen, the utility of the screen time, because um, you have to be so much more careful with that in a film than in a book, obviously. Um, even just in noting the passing of time, you can't note the passing of time. Like you can, you can give two paragraphs where you say that, you know, like they were there for weeks and weeks. It's you can't convey that in the movie equivalent of two paragraphs. Um, so clearly, with the determining factor as to how long, how much screen time is spent with them there is how much they need or want to accomplish um, in the Elven King's Eye. That is, that the film wants to accomplish. So how much are we going to get if we get a lot of elf intrigue? You know, that is, we learn a lot about what's going on, like Thranduil, Legolas stuff, Toriel stuff, Toriel, Legolas stuff, Thranduil, Toriel stuff, any of those kind of internal affairs of the Wood Elves. Um, if we're going to get a lot of that, then we might spend more time there so as to allow that to come across. Are we going to get Toriel and Kiwi making smoldering glances between the bars? I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, like, whatever, so, so it's really, it's going to depend on what he wants to set up, what, you know, what he wants to do. And this is something, by the way, on the general subject of Toriel, um, where I have uh, basically argued that the creation of Toriel was defensible uh, from the beginning, is that the elves, the wood elves in The Hobbit are not very clearly developed as characters. I mean, the Elven King is the only um, the only elf with any kind of distinction. We do get one other, one one named elf. We're not even told, of course, the elf, the Elven King's name. He's just uh, identified by title, and it's Gally and the Butler. But, um, but really, we don't get any. We don't get to know any of the elves. We don't get like a Haldir character, 
right? Um, when we go to Othlorien, we meet Goadriel and Celeborn, but Haldir is like the representative of, of the Galathrim. We don't, we barely even see in passing any of the rest of the elves. The Fellowship spends all their time by themselves, basically, in Lothlorien. Um, so, but Haldir uh, is the way in which Tolkien, you know, is basically the character through which Tolkien introduces the readers to uh, the elves of Lore, you know, like, so, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the rank and file elves of Lothlorien. We don't have any kind of rank and file view of what the wood elves are like um, in The Hobbit. It just doesn't happen. So, the idea that he would want to create essentially a Haldir character, somebody for the audience to connect with and get some kind of imaginative grasp on what these people are like, really does kind of make sense. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. And if you're going to create a Haldir-like character, might as well be female because it gives you a, another role to hand out to a woman in this movie, which is already pretty short of female right. roles. So <laughs> and dodge you know, the mean, inevitable criticism. Right, exactly, um, and create the inevitable criticism from Tolkien fans. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you're really in a cleft stick on that one. But on but, but you know, but side. but but of course, the Tolkien criti Tolkien fan criticism will fo focus on the fact that this is a made up character, not on the fact that it's a woman. So if you're going to make one, you might as well make it a woman. Yeah, I mean, you might as well. I mean, I think that's, that's actually actually the... you kind of mitigate the criticism some because because then the Tolkien fans will kind of grumble and be like, well, yeah, you're right, there aren't very many women characters, so I guess <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so it's so it's yeah, really start... brilliant. That is, it is. No, I mean, I think it's 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 it, it, again. It seems to me from that point of view, it seems to me justifiable, and I think that the. It's one of the things, thinking about the, this whole adaptation project, that is the whole Hobbit adaptation project, viewing the Hobbit from the point of view, of, from a post-Lord of the Rings point of view, um, integrating the Hobbit story into uh, a more fully integrated with Middle-earth history, Lord of the Rings world, which the Hobbit is not, the published Hobbit is not integrated. It's not. In lots of places, it's not. And so w if you're telling the story from that perspective, you almost have to invest more in the Wood Elves because, you know, in the post-Legolas's existence world, we know more about the Wood Elves. Through Legolas, we have a connection to the Wood Elves retroactively from the Lord of the Rings perspective, not in The Hobbit itself. So then, of course, the question would be, well, why did they have to invent Toriel? Why couldn't they just use Legolas as a connection? And I think that there are two reasons for that. One is, well, okay, there are several different reasons. One reason is it actually would be kind of awkward to use Legolas as a Haldir-like figure with the Wood Elves because we already have so many associations with him. Um, you know, if he were that sort of a figure, we'd be thinking of, you know, him and Gimli and his relationship with Aragorn. It's just, I, he's not a clean enough figure in that way, clean of associations for us really to sort of see him as a representative of that culture rather than as a member of the Fellowship of the Ring, which is how everybody's going to see him. Um, and of course, another reason not to have Legolas play that very prominent role is that Orlando Bloom is very expensive these days. And so to give him that much screen <laughs> time um, might blow the bank. So um, that would true. be another reason, I think, to invent a more minor but character. You, you do bring up a good point, which is... Um, <laughs> 
which is one way one way to sort of get around this the 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 sort of the constraints that Legolas put on you in terms of obviously you want there to be an elf character on screen who's sympathetic to the dwarves because that gives you a chance to 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 sort of create some drama that pushes back against the 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 enmity between the two races and 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 like you said legolas is kind of the obvious choice for that because it's really fun if you can put him at opposition to his to his father and also he he becomes a dwarf sympathizer later but one way to get around that is to add another character who maybe happens to be friends with Legolas. I, I, I have this suspicion that, that Tariel and Legolas are going to be involved somehow. Maybe not not romantically, right. but, but they'll be colleagues or, or comrades. Right. And one way to do right. this is to, to essentially have her be the character that, that sympathizes with the dwarves and have her sort of be, you know, connected to Legolas in some way. And maybe – so you, what you end up with is this weird chain of, of – um, the dwarves, Bilbo, Toriel, uh, Legolas, Thranduil, and you know, for and, and the your sort of your connection and your relationship is developed through that. I mean, it's very it's indirect and kind of weird, but but it, it's you can essentially plant the seeds for Legolas's future sympathy with with right. Tori with his friendship with Toriel and then her friendship with the dwarves. Right. Yes. Exactly. No. I mean, I think that that actually makes a good deal of sense to me. Um, um, and yeah, I mean, starting with a clean slate, you know, with the Toriel figure, um, I, again, I, I think that that's, from a storytelling perspective, it's a very sensible way to approach it, I think. Um, so, yeah, now, to what extent she will be a sympathizer? Of course, she could be the other way around. I mean, it's conceivable that Toriel could be a dwarf hater, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, but She'll be the elf supremacist character. <laughs> oh, that would be delightful. That, that would that 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 would go over a tree, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll see. Um, but staging uh, staging uh, demonstrations outside the dungeons of the dwarves. <laughs> right, That's exactly. Right. Demanding them. their execution. That's you right. know, uh, one could. <laughs> One could see, then you have Thranduil poised as the uh, as the moderate party between the uh, the rabid anti dwarf party and the uh, and the the sort of kind and benevolent party. We could have Legolas representing that party and Toriel as the hater, um, but that's not really likely. It's more likely that she likes dwarves and especially she likes. Uh, you know that that she that she likes her men's uh, small, dark, and handsome, and uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, oh gosh, that reminds me of a terrible joke. So, had a beer on so one that thing, was a terrible uh, joke. So going back to the time compression <laughs> briefly, uh, uh, Philip Lord did point out that they could show the passage of time, uh, uh, maybe by uh, maybe measure it in beard growth. <laughs> and Mike Thurway talks barrels... about a burglar montage or a passage without any screen time, but you know they haven't really done that. They didn't do that in the first no, movie, they they where they that. show like a montage. And I, I don't think it would passage. work. I think it would just be. It would. I think it would feel weird time-wise. It would be I, campy, and it would be. It would be. Yeah, it would definitely be. Yep. 
a level of campiness that we haven't seen. Have some have some silly music and show just you know humorous footage of Bilbo swiping things and you know the elves right, right. the elves standing there pouring his drink and then he turns around and it's gone. Where where did it go? <laughs> right, right. Yes, exactly. Or it's empty or the cup's empty. That would be funny once, and I, I, I would actually imagine that something like that will happen at some point, you know, that there will be a, like, hey, like, you know, my ham and cheese sandwich was right here. What happened? You know, um, like, I, I'm sure we'll get some That Lemba's of... package just, just <laughs> right, walked off exactly. on its own. Where's my cupcake? Um, uh, but so I'm laughing about cupcakes. I I I I am I'm an almost inexhaustible uh, enjoyment of cupcake jokes because again, in um, in in one of his initial plot notes when he was first sketching out the plot of the Hobbit here, one of the things that uh, Tolkien suggest his first version of how the dwarves get out of prison. They were going to be imprisoned by the elves from the very first time um, he conceived of the plot. Um, but how to get them free, he was not quite sure. And the barrels occurred to him pretty early on, but it wasn't, you know, Bilbo breaking them out uh, through barrels was not the very first conception. The very first conception was that Bilbo was going to travel was going to set out and travel solo all the way back to Bjorn's house. And when he gets to Bjorn's house, there's the wizard, there's Gandalf still there because he didn't, Tolkien had no idea where he was going. He knew he was going to separate him from Bilbo and the dwarves, but he didn't know where he was going to go. So there's Gandalf still just hanging out, like drinking mead with Bjorn uh, and Bilbo's going to be all like, um, come help us. And, and Gandalf is going to do it. Um, but, there's a reference in these very sketchy notes that when Bilbo sets off for his trip back through, he fills, he fills his pockets with fairy cakes. Um, and of course, fairy cakes in England are cupcakes. Like that's what, what Americans call cupcakes in England are still to this day called fairy cakes. You mean on his, on um, his so, way out on a, to, to go back and, and enlist Bjorn, he's stuffing his pockets with cupcakes? Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's sustain cupcakes. him on his way back to Bjorn's house. That seems exactly. like something you do. <laughs> Yeah, and I just like that 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 image of like Bilbo with like a like a like a like a backpack full of cupcakes, uh, you know, making them last all the way through Mirkwood is just like an image that I find so delightful that I can't. Now, of course, like now, in a no, serious wait, wait, wait. sense, now picture it yeah. as Martin Freeman. <laughs> right, exactly. It's funnier that way. I mean, it's totally funny. Um, now, of course, like in a serious sense, this reference to the fairy cakes uh, are, you know, probably not actual cupcakes, uh, but rather some kind of, you know, this is arguably one of the very first associations between uh, Tolkien's elves and some kind of magical elf baked good, you know, that becomes Lembus. Um, this Ooh. is right around the time when Lembus first idea of Lembus, of the of Elven Waybread makes its first appearance. Um, so I think one could actually argue that in the in the uh, in 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 the cupcakes reference, uh, in that set of plot notes, we're getting like the seed of what's going to become Lembus later on. But um, but anyway, so there is sort of a serious side to it. But I can I, I can never help but laugh at the uh, at the cupcake thing. Um, but uh, so anyway, so I imagine we're going to get some of that food and drink swiping. But I, I it's hard for me to see any kind of a montage of it or that carrying on for very long. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think. Um, well, 
we should probably move on to sort of another key topic, which is the escape and the and the barrel thing. Yes, exactly. No, that's what I was just Actually, thinking. Actually, can before we do that, can we can we yeah. for maybe a couple minutes? Uh, one thing I would like to hit on, just just for fun, is uh, visuals and looks. Yes. Um, that it's ah. something that we we sometimes we, you know we're we're all we're all heavily biased towards story and character and that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, but. But I just remember uh, one of the first when you know, like two years ago, when we were daily scouring the internet for whatever we could, and um, and pictures, illicit pictures started leaking out of New Zealand. One of the things that it leaked out of were things that people speculated to be uh, the Elven King's realm. Um, it was sort of interior, kind of interior sort of shots of like you know, like sort of. Not furniture, but kind of like pillars and things that look yes. like hallways and stuff. And it was people were looking at it and saying, "There's no way that's dwarvish, so it's got to be the Elven King's realm." So, so anyway, I just wanted to kind of get your sort of speculation or or, or thoughts about how it might look. Um... Well, see, it's interesting because you know the underground cave dwellings of the Elven King of Mirkwood is something which, again, is doesn't fit very well with Lord of the Rings' expectations for elf dwellings. Um, it does fit, of course, with Silmarillion stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it, it seems to be, it seems to very closely echo uh, the caves of Minigroth and Doriath, and of course we also have um, Nargothrond as another underground cave dwelling uh, of the elves. So that's something that we do see quite a bit in the Silmarillion, but we don't really see it um, in the Lord of the Rings. And so for the viewing audience, I think the fact that we're getting, I mean, visually, if you think about the way that both Rivendell and Lothlorien have been depicted visually uh, in the Lord of the Rings films, they are very bright. They're very light-filled. You know, they're very, um, uh, like, light colors or uh, lots of white, lots of open space, lots of um, lots of sunlight or moonlight in the case of uh, Elrond's peculiar ice light table that he looks at the moon letters through uh, in the first Hobbit film. Um, and so to have an elf realm underground visually is definitely going to be a challenge as far as challenging the expectations uh, of, of viewers. One way in which I would expect this to be moderated is that there's going to be a lot of light and that I would expect the... Um, there are references, of course, especially in the description of Menegroth, um in various of the Silmarillion writings, um, references to the fact that the, the the pillars in the caves are carved to look like trees. So I would actually guess that when we're inside the palace of the Elven King, there are going to be places which look almost outdoors. You know, there's I, I would expect there to be a lot of uh, a lot of growing things, a lot of carvings that are in the um, shape of trees and leaves and fruits and things like that. Um, but uh, because you know, any kind of dark and cave-like place is, I think, going to be a striking difference to a viewing audience. Yeah, the, the, it, it is. It is kind of. 
the the idea of sort of a underground cavernous elven kingdom is is not um, not consistent visually with with what we've become accustomed to either with right. Rivendell or with um, Lothlorien. Uh, and in fact, it always seemed a little weird to me, and I ne never was never able to picture it well because I feel like we don't get we don't get as rich a description of the Elven King's um, uh, kingdom uh, as we do of um, Lothlorien or of Rivendell, and, or for mm -hmm. you know, same thing for that matter uh, for Meningroth uh, in the Silmarillion, which 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 obviously there's a connection between these two; they're very similar, right? Right, and this is one of the really fun things. Um, with the description of Menegroth. So we don't get that much description. We get some description, but not that much in the published Silmarillion. But where we get a lot of description of Menegroth is in the Lay of Lathian and the, the, the rhymed couplets epic poem that Tolkien was writing of the Baron and Luthien story. But guess what we find in the long description of Menegroth? Um, I can quote you some of it. A king there was on carven throne in many pillared, many pillared halls of stone. Um, that is, the lines in Gimli's Khazad-dum song, his Durin song, um, in The Lord of the Rings, are taken word for word from, uh, from the... Uh, sorry, my phone is ringing here. Um, How rude. Uh, is, 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 is taken word for word from that description, not of any dwarf dwelling, but of Menegroth uh, in the Lay of Lathian. Um, and when, whenever anybody reads that for the first time, whenever they, they, they come across that description of uh, Menegroth, it's always shocking um, because that's the description. I mean, it's, it's the one everyone is familiar with, the description of the dwarven realm of Durin's place of Casadum itself. Um, and it was actually originally the description of the, elf, of the Elfin King's Halls in Menegroth. Um, now, it's not that I expect them to follow that, that you know, like, to actually establish a link and to make uh, the caves of, of Thranduil look like Casadum or anything. Um, but... But but it is it is kind of interesting, and, and Dave, this just kind of goes along with what you were saying about how it seems it does seem kind of counterintuitive like that when you know that what we know of Tolkien's elves, what we see of Tolkien's elves, leads us to expect them to dwell in forests, to dwell in the open forests, not to be living in caves under the ground. So anyway, that's, I think it's uh, going to end up being Tom Thomas Kincaid because I mean. Rivendell and Lorien both in the movies both both were sort of portrayed with a real Thomas Kincaid kind of air about them mm -hmm. and I'm I mean I think I think you're right I think there's gonna be a lot of light even though there'll be I don't think it'll be really cavernous like like Erebor was portrayed right I right. think we'll still get sort of this Thomas Kincaid kind of effect yeah I mean I would expect to see lots of light colors basically and and I'm not sure how they'll do the light you know the light is interesting and they might I don't know if they're just going to fake it or what because I mean presumably the only sources of light that would be possible would be uh, would be torches and fires and things but I wonder you know are they going to are they going to fudge things and have like glowing white crystals or something like that um I could imagine that, but it, it it will be an interesting question. It's certainly one of the things I was uh, I was very uh, I was very interested to see Erebor, you know, to see how they were going to depict Erebor in film one. It's one of the things, as far as the visuals, that I was most excited to see. Um, 
in film two. I'm interested to see Lake Town, but Lake Town seems to me, you know, I don't know. Like Tolkien drew so many pictures of Lake Town that I'm not sitting here thinking like, oh, like it's. I really wonder what they're going to do with it. I mean, I suspect I know what they're going to do. What will the Lonely Mountain look like? Right, exactly. Um, I mean, I think you know, there's there doesn't seem to be to me quite so much freedom um, for how they're going to make Lake Town look. I mean, maybe they're going to deviate greatly from Tolkien's drawings, but I don't expect them to. Um, But the uh, Halls of the Elven King, that is something which is much closer to a blank slate, um, artistically speaking, visually speaking. Um, And that's definitely the scene, um, the actual, like, piece of landscape and scenery that I'm going to be most most looking forward to actually seeing how they visualize uh, in the second film. Okay. Um, we should probably, we should probably move on toward the escape. Although there, is, barrels, yeah. there is one other quote unquote minor thing that I did that we've, that we uh, already touched on a bit, which is, do you think they will do any of the kind of um, sort of Silmarillion, uh, more ancient mythology, mm-hmm. kind of hinting at or or um, or referencing or Easter egging that the Hobbit itself does in kind of right. kind of kind of right. uh, analogizing Thranduil with Thingol, and and also that right. we got in the first film with the blue wizards and and uh, right. spawn of well, I could uh, imagine Ungoliant. I could imagine Easter egging. I could imagine stray comments being made or allusions being dropped. I cannot see like a flashback. You know, I cannot see a real elaboration, even a retelling of the ancient war between dwarves and elves. And in fact, I think for me, um this is that was one of the things that I took from uh the Thorin Thranduil grudge, that is Thorin's grudge against Thranduil at the attack on Erebor, is it basically replaces it. They have a history. They have a person. They don't need ancient history. Um, One of the reasons to give any kind of a justification or background to why there is tension between the dwarves and the wood elves in in the published Hobbit is to appeal to ancient history, to let the readers know there are of old issues between these two peoples, and so don't be surprised that this is flaring up again. Um, We don't need that kind of an excuse in the Hobbit film because that has been superseded by the immediate, recent, and personal antagonism between Thorin and Thranduil. So I will be very surprised if we get any kind of extensive recollection. I could see comments. I mean, I could see somebody, you know, saying, like one of the dwarves, saying something like, uh, you know, dwarves and elves have never really gotten along, or, you know, Thranduil saying, you know, making some kind of, when he's talking to Legolas or Toriel or whoever he's talking to, when he's being overheard by Bilbo and they're talking about the dwarf issue, um, I could imagine Thranduil or one of the elves dropping a reference to, like, how, you know, we've, al- we've, we've always had problems with dwarves or, um, you know, this is not the first time we've, uh, we've had issues, you know, so I, but I, but I would not expect more than that. Okay. That's, that's kind of what I figured too. I, I, I just, I have this sense of, this is one of those things where, where, um, Tolkien fans would go nuts every time yeah. they, uh, they drop us a little thingle, um, Melian, <laughs> right. Menengroth, Doriath, whatever reference, we'd be like, woohoo! 
but I, it's right. uh, I, I just yeah, it's going to make things too confusing. So yeah, I think I mean we got the Battle of Azanul Bazaar. I think we need to count our blessings there. Right. I, yeah. I, yeah. I, that I actually made think... sense, sort of. Right. Right, exactly. The, the exactly, scene was yeah. a little. The scene was kind of a little awkward. It was kind of a, a gratuitous, like we really want to put this on screen, so we're just going to add this random scene of the dwarves sitting around on the mountainside talking about orcs. Uh, right. But right. but we overlooked it. But I think here, like you know, we'd like to take a ten minute divergence just to explain <laughs> right. the real root of the enmity between the dwarves <laughs> and the elves. For the vast majority exactly. of you watching this film, this is going to make no sense. But uh, right. here you go. Because yeah, we heard Corey yeah, and Dave and Trish were, were really excited. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just let's, let's do into a little <laughs> – let's, let's segue into a little, you know, elf history biopic in the middle of, uh, uh, in, <laughs> in the, middle of the film for no good reason. Yeah. No, I, I don't see it happening. I really <clears> – <throat> Um, yeah, I really it, don't. And it, and, it, and it's even better. We're going to tell you about things that didn't actually involve any of the characters on screen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. This exactly. happened to be similar. Right. Right. All right. Yep. So no, I don't. See, I don't see them going there. So um, so let's talk escape. Um, let's talk escape. Okay. Let me actually start this discussion by. Ex- giving our riddle, and then we can. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. Let's just yeah, let's just be explicit. discussing the options. Okay, so so our our riddle involves the escape, um, and the question is, how will the barrel escape? I mean, we know they're going to be in barrels, so that's not really the question. The question is, how will the barrel escape be organized, be managed? Um, how did I forget? Yes, how 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 will it be arranged? Option A is by Bilbo alone and unaided. That's the book answer. Um, you know that uh, there's this big uh, this big emphasis is made on the fact that if anybody is going to save them, it has to be Bilbo all by himself. So, um, so option A, Bilbo alone arranges the barrel escape. Option B, um, the the escape is arranged in co- in cooperation with at least one dwarvish collaborator. Now let me explain what I mean by this. Um, this doesn't mean somebody helps out in packing the other dwarves in when they are like doing the barrels. This means like the plan is conceived in you know this is like okay Bilbo your first job is break Thorin out of jail and then the two of you will figure it out or Bilbo is talking with the dwarves and you know he's talking with uh, Thorin or with Bofor or Balin or somebody and is and and the two of them come up with the barrel plan and then Bilbo breaks him out and the two of them do it that's that's what they like so some other one of the dwarves Thorin or 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 one of the rest of them would have to be like a moving figure, either suggesting it or coming up with or or or, or making the barrel escape happen. So that's option B, um, that it happens with the help of a another central dwarvish figure. Option C, is that the escape by barrel happens with the with the knowing consent or assistance of at least one elven sympathizer. Um, again, knowing is an important thing. This is not, uh, you know, like the, uh, the, you know, they neglected something or they, you know, it doesn't just mean that like the action of some elf, unbeknownst to them, made it possible for them to escape. No, this is like some elf knows they're going to escape, sees them escape, either actually helps them, suggests the idea, uh, uh, sees it and deliberately does nothing and doesn't report it. It doesn't have to be actual assistance, but um, but anyway, that knows full well that the escape is going on and either helps it or 
act or or deliberately does not hinder it. And uh, then option D is that the escape happens with the help of magical intervention from some outside source. Outside source meaning not counting the ring. The ring doesn't count as an outside source. Um, such as like Gandalf, Radagast, Galadriel, or somebody else coming in and saving the day and, and assisting them from outside. Now, one thing that you will notice right away uh, in uh, these options is that they are not mutually exclusive. We could, of course, have uh, several of these turn out to be true. I mean, Bilbo could be planning this escape in collusion with Thorin, and then an elven sympathizer, you know, turns uh, the other way and uh, lets them go. That could be perfectly possible. The way, But these options are set up in increasingly uh, unlikely increasingly radical uh, and increasing, increasingly exotic options. So, uh, if there's a tie between any of these two, with, between any of these, if, if more than one of these happen, the correct answer goes to the higher option, to the more elaborate and exotic one. So, I'm saying, if you're going to go down and you're going to say, you're going to take a stand and say, I think an elven sympathizer helps then even if both B and C are correct, it, it is C that is correct. Um, you know, if you actually predict that Radagast comes in with his bunny sled and helps them to save the day, and you're right about that, by golly, you deserve to be right and everybody else to be wrong about <laughs> it. So, um, so that's, how, that's, that, that's how this is going to work. So A, A is true uh, if they stick close to the book. If, this, if you know, Bilbo is really the only prime mover behind the barrel, escape. Um, okay. So, what do you guys think? Whew. Um, this is an interesting, this is an interesting question. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think the, to me, the, the elven, um, the elven sympathizer just seems like, it just, it seems to, it's, it, I think it's almost almost certainly going to happen. Like I, I just I think there's going to be elves involved in it somehow, and I think the way it's done in the book just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like I don't think we're going to see Bilbo swiping the keys off of drunken elves. Um, well, you know, and maybe, Dave, you course, stole my thunder. Maybe there's some <laughs> maybe there's some other kind of trickery, but it just to me it's sort of like when you start thinking about okay, how could they do it in a way that probably makes a little more sense uh, from a from a book standpoint? Inter introduces some interesting character stuff going on, that kind of stuff. To me, it's just like uh, I think an elf's going to help them. I think there's going to be some elf that's going to have a crisis of conscience moment where where um, they're going to decide this is for the greater good and they're going to they're going to help Bilbo even if it's even if it's not even if they're not um uh intimately involved in the planning of it there's going to be some elf that's going to make a choice not to hinder them but rather to either maybe maybe they won't even directly help maybe they'll just choose not to stop them um so as opposed to it being like the 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 guard, the the jail guard or whatever whatever that guy's job was the 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 um yeah the bailiff and the uh, butler falling asleep on wine it'll be more the like the bailiff let's say Tariel maybe deciding like you know we're not going to raise the alarm we're just going to let them sneak out and pretend they caught us uh, uh, unaware um, I think I actually think that's more likely than than there being a dwarf who's actively involved in the well maybe the dwarves will be involved in planning it but 
um, yeah, it just seems it seems like too good. A, it's it seems like the kind of thing that would work really well on screen, and I don't think they would be able to resist doing it. And it, and I'm not even sure it's a bad idea. I think it's a pretty good idea. So. Yeah, well, I, I agree. I mean, of course, one thing that we have to mention, and we've mentioned it before, is Peter Jackson has created a consistency issue. You know, he has made it almost impossible to follow the actual plot of the book here because he, for some reason that I don't fully understand, decided to add that extra scene uh, in the two towers with the drinking competition between Legolas and Gimli making right. elves totally impervious to the effects of almost completely impervious to the effects of alcohol um, and thanks to that egregious and quite unnecessary scene uh, in the two towers he now can't do the hobbit scene um, we, I don't think we can have drunk elves passing out I mean the quantity of alcohol they would have to drink uh, in order to get there would be ludicrous even more ludicrous by, than the by the way doesn't in that scene with Gimli does Lego I can't remember now does Legolas is Legolas like naive about alcohol in that scene with Gimli in the movie in the it towers? sounds like it yes because I mean, these sounds, are wine barrels that they escape in yes in the yeah. movie well they don't escape in <laughs> the wine barrels one. they escape in like the apple and butter barrels no 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 um, in 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 Jackson's movie, they're wine barrels. There are going to be wine barrels. How do you close yeah. a wine barrel? They don't open. I mean, I like know. an apple barrel, you have to have a lid that opens and can be resealed. Wine barrels, like you have to broach them. I mean, you have to stick a spigot into them to get them to... to well, now you and lids. I just talked about how... you just. You, I mean, before we started the broadcast, you were just saying to me how Jackson's not going to worry about the fact that there are waterfalls. Why would he worry about a wine barrel opening <laughs> If he's, if he's not worried about there being waterfalls in the river and Lake Town doing well, commerce, then, you know. possible. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> but it's just, there's a difference because you have to depict it. That is, he can, he could, uh, I mean, yes, there's the, you know, Armitage has mentioned that there are going to be waterfalls that they're going over uh, in the barrels. And, and the very sensible question was posed by one of our listeners, if that's the case, how on earth do the, uh, is the river, if there are waterfalls in the river, how do they use it for river commerce between Lake Town and, and the Wales? Um, and that does strike me as the kind of detail that a Peter Jackson film is not particularly interested in. Which is gloss over. Yeah, well, yeah because it's fine. I mean, like, you just say, look, there's trade. Um, you don't have to say they pull rafts of barrels from one place to the other. <laughs> you can just say there's trade. Maybe they maybe they go around. Maybe there's a road. Maybe they don't use the river, the river at all. <laughs> Who knows? But we don't ever have to depict. This is, this is, this is though, coming back to my answer to your question, though, Trish. He, Peter Jackson never has to show on screen a raft of barrels. He never has to show like this is uh, this is the way that we go back and forth between the lake town uh, and the forest routinely. He doesn't have to do that. You do have to ha say this is a wine barrel. Come, let me take the lid off, and then it's no longer a wine barrel. It's going to look stupid. I mean, I don't know. It's just the kind of thing that I would think uh, he has been. Um, he t he has tended to it seems to me pay attention to visual details, you know, like he's not going to. Well, and, but do remember that the photo that we have, you know, that staged photo of the dwarves in barrels, kind of looking right. out and halfway yep. in, halfway out. 
is yeah. in a wine cellar. I mean, there are right. wine bottles. And that's going to be fine. Yeah. That's, I mean, they're, because it is going to be in their, in their cellars and stuff. So one would expect wine in the background and everything that, but it's just, I mean, you can't, you can't, I mean, it would. So be that'll like, be, our, this'll be Laura Burkholz and Alec uses as our conundrum for this this episode. Will they be wine barrels or not? <laughs> Will they be wine barrels or not? Um, and of course, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually, you know, we get like this, you know, feely speech about never being able to, to eat apples again um, after going down the river in and out, you know, spending a, you know, a day and a night in, 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 a, in a used apple barrel. Um, but, um, yeah. Now, Michael brings up a really interesting point here, and and Michael, you know, that this is a possibility. Um, uh, Michael says about, about the elven drunkenness consistency issue. Uh, he says, I can see them working around it by saying that elf wine is ten times more powerful than human wine, and indeed there is a reference to that in the Hobbit. I mean, we're told that the wine that they're drinking is indeed unusually potent. Um, I mean, you'd think that if they were drinking 200 puf proof pure ethanol, uh, they would. St I mean, given the quantity of uh, of of beer that Legolas drinks in order to just begin to feel very slightly buzzed, uh, in order to pass out, um, you know, he'd have to be like doing a keg stand with pure ethanol. But um, uh, but anyway, you know, perhaps they could just wave their hands at that and not um, not uh, not really connect the dots there too much. That seems possible. But Trish, I think the point that you made is to me even more significant is that uh, Legolas seems to be a newbie to the whole drinking thing um, when he's having that competition. Now it could, again, that could be just recast to say, no, it's beer that he's new to. Right. Um, he, he, he's never really drunk beer before, and so that's why he's having this beer right. drinking right. competition. Um, conceivable. That's conceivable. Right. But it still, it seems to me more complicated, and especially if they're going to be interested in, which it seems that they are, from the creation of Toriel and the addition of the new Thranduil plot and everything, it seems that they are going to be interested in giving us some more detail about the Wood Elves, about involving the Wood Elves more intimately in the story and giving them more of a, more of a role. I, 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 it does seem to me plausible that we're going to be replacing uh, a drunken butler with uh, a, a, you know, a sort of butler in an ethical and moral quandary or a guard in an ethical and moral <laughs> quandary rather than one who is just drunk. Which let's but, face it, those are approximately the those yeah, are really that's kind of really the same state of things. <laughs> it is pretty much the same thing. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Well, so so Dave, does that mean you're going for C? Uh, that's definitely the direction I'm leaning in. Um, are you holding out to wait to see what Corey says? No, well, no, I'm, I'm... no. I, I, I just don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to pre-commit myself uh, in case we have more sort of discussion about this. Sort of like, is there any other sort of outland? Uh, are there any other nuances or um... outlandish theories? Yeah, I was uh, just coming up with one. Yeah, other outlandish uh, theories. Oh, outlandish theories feel... or um, or just sort of you know like things that we need we should dig into. You know, uh, caveats or or questions or possibilities. See, I, I always feel it incumbent upon me to make some kind of cockamamie argument for every single one of the options. Uh, I, yeah, uh, I agree. So, um, so let me see if I can construct an argument in defense of D. 
Well, it, it, which is clearly the most out there of, of of the lot. It is. There's 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 source material for it, right? There is source material for it. Again, as I already mentioned, that was literally Plan A uh, of of Tolkien's construction of this of this sequence was that. Bilbo was going to go and fetch Gandalf, and Gandalf was going to was going to you know pull their chestnuts out of the fire again. Um, now, Tolkien went away from that for good reasons, and of course, with the whole addition and development of the Dol Guldur plot, um, it seems like all the magical people are going to be busy elsewhere in the forest during this sequence. Um, but I don't know. Let's see. Okay. But let me but let me try harder. So, well, well, you know, I, so one question. So, so for yeah. starters, one thing yeah. we have observed is there is a character in the film version of The Hobbit so far who seems to have a knack for um, getting into places that he probably shouldn't and uh, traveling the wide expanse of Middle Earth in in matters of minutes, and that is Radagast yes. the Brown. Exactly. Clearly, if his bunnies can get him across the Misty Mountains with such dispatch, they can no question get him from one end of Mirkwood to the other in a matter of hours, days, minutes. So, yeah. Now, of course, the larger issue that this question raises is to what extent, if at all, are they going to connect the Dolgoldor plot with the Erebor quest? That is, other than the timing... Um, it just so happens that at the same time you guys are headed to the Lonely Mountain, we're going to choose to take on the Necromancer, um, which, by the way, is how Tolkien presents it in the book, you know, that these two things are happening almost coincidentally. You know, certainly in retrospect, when he's writing the Quest of Erebor and stuff, he has, you know, Gandalf walking one way down the road, thinking to himself, what am I going to do about this dragon? How are we going to, you know, Sauron is taking shape and is going to, is going to move soon. How do we thwart Sauron? And Thorin walking the other way down the road saying, my treasure, how can I go and reestablish my kingdom? I have no idea. And the two of them meeting and being like, your chocolate is in my peanut butter. Like, you know, let's get together on this. Um, so, I mean, that's that that kind of, the fact that it's a coincidence is in fact emphasized. And of course, Gandalf in the Quest of Erebor is all like, it's not a coincidence at all, of course. Um, but there's no actual link between those two plots. That is, you know, neither one of them actually touches the other in any kind of direct way. Are they going to be separate like that in the Hobbit film? Are we going to get Gandalf goes off on his own and the, you know, Bilbo and the dwarves go into Mirkwood and Gandalf goes off on his own and does his thing presumably with Goadriel and probably with Radagast um, down in the south of Mirkwood. Okay, so are, are those just going to be separate? Like they're never going to connect? And so that essentially Bilbo and Thorin and the rest of the dwarves live, remain in ignorance even about the existence of the other plot. Um, which is, again, what happens. It's only later on. Remember, in the book, Bilbo doesn't find out what Gandalf did until they get back to Rivendell on the way home. That's the first time he hears about, like, oh, yeah, so Gandalf was actually found something productive to do with himself when he left us behind. Now, it's not introduced until that point in the book, in the published book, for the very good reason that Tolkien didn't think of it until then. I mean, he still had no idea where the went when he left the party uh, for quite some time. But um, 
but anyway, obviously, when we're looking back from a post Lord of the Rings perspective, when when we're looking back as he was looking back in the quest of Erebor, um, at the whole larger plot, um, there are some reasons to think about links between them. Um, I assume, for instance, that uh, that Azog is going to be involved. You know, or that Azog and the general Azog plot are going to be connected to the Battle of Five Armies at the end. And I, we've talked before about you know that there's reason to think that Azog would be connected with the Necromancer as well. You know, we've talked a little bit. Uh, well, no, we've talked in a couple episodes about sort of goblin politics and to what extent the goblins are going to be serving Sauron as Necromancer. Uh, during the film, and we've sort of speculated on numerous occasions about suppose, you know, the Azog Bolg combination. Suppose, uh, connection suppose Azog, suppose Azog assists the dwarves in escaping in order to have the opportunity to murder them later. <laughs> yes, because he'd be real inconspicuous <laughs> in the halls of the Elven King. You know, they'd probably, you know, if if Azog just put like a wig on and like a glove. <laughs> And Spiky drape, drape the towel over his 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 his, his yeah his arm. <laughs> yeah, you know, put the, then then yeah, you know, he could probably go totally unnoticed in the halls of the Elven King, and um, yeah, <laughs> no, that would totally work. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but so, anyway, uh, the point that I mean, this I'm I'm striving to make a serious well, point. Well, and my I serious think, um, point is I, we have if Azog is connected to the Necromancer, then we have already. An establishment of a th- of a link between the necromancer plot, the However and the Erebor plot. It, well, it is. I mean, in the Battle of Five Armies, the Battle of Five Armies in the book has nothing to do with the necromancer. The necromancer totally irrelevant to the Battle of Five Armies. The goblins of the Misty Mountains just do this on their own, um, and it's connected back to elf to dwarven history in the fact that Bolg, son of Azog, is leading the goblin armies, but. It has nothing to do with the necromancer. Right. If the leaders of the goblin armies at the Battle of Five Armies are in fact connected to the necromancer, then we do have some kind of connection. Um, and how that's going to work out and what that's going to mean earlier on, I don't know. Are Thorin and Bilbo going to remain ignorant? Is Gandalf not going to tell them where he's going? Um, are they going to have no idea? Um in some ways, that's kind of harder. I mean, you think about in The Lord of the Rings, when we have the two different plots, you know, when we have the, the Frodo and Sam go to Mordor plot uh, and the, the Battle of Minas Tirith plot, or you know, first the Battle of the, you know, the Rohan and then Minas Tirith plot, um, there's always a connection. They're at least aware of each other. And, of course, they then come together climactically at the end mm-hmm. um, in the final battle before the Black Gate and for Frodo and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, to have a similar division in film two of The Hobbit, between the Gandalf-Galadriel plot and the Bilbo and Thorin plot, but to have those two plots proceeding in ignorance of each other, totally unrelated, um, with no link whatsoever between them, that's going to be hard to do. I think it's going to be awkward. Well, it's, but, they are. They already hinted yeah. at it, right? Um, with the conversation between Gandalf and Thorin... Uh, right after they defeat the trolls, where Gandalf says, "You know, trolls abroad in the mountains that hasn't been, or you know, down out of their out of the mountains that hasn't right. been seen since you know an older age when when this region was under the control of an evil power." And Thorin just mm-hmm. kind of looks at him. 
uh, ominously. So, and and I think, and it wasn't a what are you talking about, Gandalf? It was a knowing sort of, you know, I know what you're, I know what you're getting at, and it's not really explored because I think, I think at this point, the evidence is too tenuous, and this is not really sort of Thorin's main focus, but. But it was clear that Thorne knew what he was talking about, and and so already that idea has got to be planted in his head that if they start to see more suspicious events, um, uh, and and, they, and of course they've already run into Radagast and heard what he had to say about Mirkwood, so right. uh, so so I actually think I think you're I think you're right I think it's likely going to be there's going to be some connection and that the main characters will probably be somewhat aware of it uh, you know how strong it'll be will whether Sauron's going to show up at the Battle of Five Armies after he's been driven out of Dol Gold or God I hope not uh, it remains to be seen I guess right um, so uh, I did want to say for so so to give D a little help. Um, uh, people had a few proposals about how this might work. <laughs> one, one of one of them's kind of so. So St- Stefan was was suggesting that maybe maybe uh, Radagast returns to Mirkwood, discovers Sebastian and, and his hedgehog family have have disappeared, and goes looking uh. for them, and ends up at Thrand Doyle's doorstep. <laughs> maybe, there we go. Maybe Sebastian has been imprisoned as well. Sebastian as the link. Yes, they go and like, because you know, we we mentioned about you know the possibility of Thranduil having a having an imprisoning people problem. And yes, he's got <laughs> Sebastian and his whole family in another cell, and Radagast isn't going to take it anymore. Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, uh, that, and that would totally <clears throat> suppose suppose a less humorous version of the Azog idea. Maybe Azog doesn't doesn't help the dwarves, but maybe he um, maybe he shows up attacks the elves or just shows up in general and distracts the elves so so what if right at the time the dwarves are escaping it just so happens that that the elves are not at full strength in in guarding the jail either because they're pursuing azog or maybe because they've sent forces to assist at dull golder so as a as a fringe benefit of the battle of dull golder it also serves as like an a, a diversion yes does that count as d okay that would be interesting. That would still it would be hard to count that fully as D because you're not getting the like knowing assistance of. Um... But if it, but if it, oh. if it, well, I think we should leave the door open to the discretion of our judges. That that if it's yes. heavily implied on screen that the only reason the dwarves were able to escape was because was because of uh you know sort of light staffing in the jail due to. The presence of Azog or the Battle of Dolgolder or something, then maybe. So no, I, I'm I'm just laughing. I'm like, because because what is more dramatic and compelling than staffing issues? <laughs> they're they're having budgetary. They there were several of the exactly. bailiffs were furloughed. Yeah, exactly. The the sequester has just gone into effect in the Elven King's halls, and they had to lay off a whole bunch of jailers. <laughs> That's that's right. They warned us. They warned us there would be consequences. <laughs> oh dear. Or there was a oh, union. Dear. There was a union uprising, and and uh, it, the, there's a see if they did. Some of the bailiffs didn't want to cross the picket lines. <laughs> yeah. See, any number of compelling possibilities. Here. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We could get uh, somebody going. As an emissary, like 
Galadriel, if she's going to do her teleportation thing, could come to a... Like, we could have an emissary from Lothlorien, either Galadriel or... Haldir, he's not dead yet. Haldir, who is not yet dead, showing up and saying, hey, um, uh, you know, like, we could really use your help with the whole Dal Guldur issue, since it is happening, like you know, in your forest and everything. And then while he's there, like, I can't help but notice that these dwarves are in prison and I'm going to, and I'm going to, and I'm going to help them out. That could possibly be how it, um, <laughs> sorry, just laughing. James just said, that's why Thranduil needs all that treasure. He's trying to solve, he's trying to, it's, it's really, it's a budget balancing issue <laughs> in the in the realm of the Elven King. And he's like, you know, you know how we can make up for our budget shortfall? The treasure of Thror. That's yes. how we can do new, it. We new don't have revenues. to raise taxes. Exactly. Just a new revenue stream. Uh, absolutely. No, I don't James, know why, that, that's why haven't the politicians in Washington, D.C. considered this possibility? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> treasure a of dragon Thror. horde. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so exactly. I think, um, I think, are, do you think it would be fair to say that it, basically A, B, and C are all um, uh, kind of things will happen sort of pretty much as they do in the book involving the same cast of characters, which is Bilbo the dwarves and the elves of Mirkwood, but just sort of yep. slight variations of that where where other than Bill, maybe someone other than Bilbo is 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 directly involved. D is kind yeah. of uh, basically just about anything else that happens. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I would, I would say we the could, most we likely kinda... one being being the intervention of one of sort of the major powerful characters that we've already seen on screen. But some of these other sort of some of these other sort of basically external intervention, uh, external know. intervention. Yeah, perhaps that'd be a better way to phrase it. Um, external intervention. Um, sure, sure. All right. Um, well, but uh, I personally yeah. am going with C. Okay. I, I'm I, I'm I I strongly suspect Toriel will uh if will be either involved or at least complicit. Hmm. I'm gonna go Wait for me to a jump in here? on this one. Oh, okay. You're gonna go A, Corey. I'm gonna go A. I think they're oh. gonna go book on this one. I think this is gonna be Bilbo. Uh, now, I, it's not that I disagree in general principle. I do think we're going to get an elven sympathizer. I just don't think the elven sympathizer is going to help with the escape. You're right. Um, <clears throat> they could, it, it's possible that, that they don't, in fact, um, help, but they say, but right. they approve. They approve after, after the fact, yes. Um, uh, or, or, as Stefan says, maybe Tariel will be unknowingly involved. She'll be manipulated into helping, but didn't mean to. Right. Something like that. Some kind of, you know, that's why I was emphasizing knowing consent or assistance. Um, that, like, perform some action that the elf involved is fully aware is going to lead to the escape of the, of the hobbit and dwarves. Um, that's, so, I mean, I, I'm not saying that I strongly don't think that C is going to happen. I think that C is very likely. Um, but I... But my but but my prediction is going to be a. I think that this is going to be a big Bilbo moment, um, and they are going to use this as because you know one thing, um, you know going back to an issue we didn't talk about much today, but that we have before is that I still think 
that the primary trajectory of Bilbo's own character, we talked about the development of his relationship with Thorin, but I think that the primary trajectory of Bilbo's character in the second film is still going to be his moving from accepted as one of us to becoming a leader um, and really being somebody that the other dwarves not only just accept but actually turn to and look to for uh, for guidance and leadership. Um, so for that reason, I would expect this to be... Um, a major step forward um, in Bilbo's character trajectory. So that's why I'm going book answer. That's why I'm going A, that this will be Bilbo alone, that the barrel ride is going to be Bilbo's show. Um, and that they're not going to steal his thunder by making the escape due to one of the elves. So I said, it's not that I think that C is unlikely, because I do think that's that's uh, that's where I would go Next, I mean that's that 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 would definitely be my backup vote, but uh, but but I'm, but I'm going to stick with A on this one. Okay, well, so now this actually brings up a question for me because the riddle is how is the escape by barrel arranged, and I've been assuming that that also included breaking the doors out of the dungeons, but I don't necessarily know that those two things go together automatically. Hmm. Right. Right. Um, because I was going to fall on my sword and go with B, <laughs> um, partly to raise controversy and also because I actually think that that at this point in the movie, there still is going to be some of that building of the Thorn Bilbo newly, you know, newly minted brotherhood and that Bilbo and Thorin will, um, collaborate, you know, with Thorne behind bars, but but actually hatch a plot to escape between them. And then, you know, even something as corny as Bilbo saying, I mean, Thorne saying, I'm sick, I'm sick, please come save me, you know, and Bilbo doing something to help, you know, Thorne escape, and then they, they help the people escape. But that doesn't preclude the idea of Bilbo being the one to arrange the barrel escape. But the way we've been answering the question, the way that both of you have been kind of like defending your responses has been that the two are combined. So if that's how we're going to roll with this, then I think I'll go with B, and we'll make it a divided team here. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly can see this. I mean, one of the effects of, you know, if the film were to go book answer, you know, I mean, if it were really to do, not with the drunken elves, but with the, um, you know, barrel escape as Bilbo's thing entirely. And because remember, in the book, the dwarves don't even know where they're being led. You know, Bilbo gets them out of their cells and is like, hey, I've got a plan. And they're like, okay, cool. We trust you implicitly and won't even ask what it is. Um, and then they follow him and he's like, these barrels, get into them. And the dwarves are like, you're crazy. And they refuse. And Bilbo says, okay, fine. I'll go back and lock you in your prison cells again. And they're like, no, it's okay. Let's get in the barrels. So, I mean, it is so much Bilbo's plan that they don't even know the plan until actually physically confronted with barrels. Um, there is a, the, one of the weaknesses of this potentially is that it does, especially, you know, so, so here, this, you know, Trish, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm defending B here and, and your point of view is that Thorin could end <laughs> up looking weak. Thorin could end up looking weak. Um, if that happens, you know, if basically Thorin is just sitting around saying, as he does say in the book, it's okay, Bilbo's going to come up with something, I trust Bilbo to come up with something, and I'm going to sit here and do nothing and just wait for Bilbo to come up with a plan. 
Um, you know, if that's Thorin's approach in the film, it could undermine him. Yeah, I mean, that, that's is not at much all compatible leader. with the Thorin that we that we see in right. the film. In fact, right. on that note, um, I personally found the surrender to the trolls to be to be weird yes. and awkward. Yes. Yep, I agree. No, and that's you know honestly, I will say on the uh, on the uh, on the troll surrender issue. The one thing I will say in Peter Jackson's defense, there, I agree. I don't th- doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, they take them captive, captive, and then go to eat them. What did they think they were going to do? I mean, what is the what's what's the like what's the upside of surrendering to the trolls? Um, instead of just eating Bilbo, they're going to eat all of us. I mean. It's dumb. Who would do that? But they're kind of in a cleft stick there because the alternative, what Tolkien does, is have the dwarves totally incompetent, right? Um, I mean, Tolkien's choice, instead of saying, let's nonsensically uh, submit to the trolls, what Tolkien does is say, let's even more nonsensibly walk into their clearing completely unarmed, one by one in sequence until they've captured all of us. I mean, it, that makes less sense. And certainly if you were going to try to depict it, it would make much less sense. Now, again, in, 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 in the book, it's comical. I mean, it's, hap- it's funny that way. And remember, they don't even have weapons. Thorin has to pick up a stick out of the fire and use that to fight with. So, um, you know, the idea that... So, yeah, so basically Peter Jackson is stuck. He can't depict the dwarves as that clueless. Thorin's, Thorin isn't that clueless. The other dwarves are not that clueless. They grow up over the course of the Hobbit book. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's tough um, from, from, that, from that perspective. So I, I can see Peter Jackson kind of choosing that as the lesser of two evils um, in that sense. But anyway, I think... Uh, um, so, but, but, but you're right. Um, I, it, it, it is not consistent. Now, I can still imagine to go back to, to switch from defending B to defending A instead, as I was before. I can see Thorin's character going along with Bilbo's plan. You know, basically still having the barrel thing be Bilbo's idea. Um, what I can't see is Thorin being passive. He is a much stronger leader in the film than he is in the book. Um, so he's not just going to be sitting there and saying, you know, Bilbo, convey my message to everybody else. And my message is, I, your Captain Thorin, am telling you, just do whatever Bilbo says. Um, you know, that's, that's what he does in the book. I can't see that. But I still can see the barrels being Bilbo's idea and even Thorin being the primary spokesman against it and being like, this is a crazy plan. Um, how about you just break us out of our cells and we're, we'll fight our way free? That sounds better to me. Can we just do that? And Bilbo saying, no, 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 no barrels, really. Let's do barrels. Um, <laughs> so, now, you know, I can yeah. see to defend, now I'll defend A, or okay. possibly C too, which is that Thorin could be so, um, so he's such a hothead, our, Thor, our, our movie Thorin, that yeah. he could be so um, uh, obsessed in his hatred of Thranduil and the fact that he's been, you know, put in the dungeon by this elf that he you know is like his mortal enemy that he just can't you know there's just he just doesn't have brain cells free for any place anything else and so bilbo basically takes the bull by the horn and and you know handles it himself so that you know that doesn't necessarily take away from thorin's character but also allows bilbo to do it on his own Mm -hmm. so 
there you go. See now you you defended mine. I defended yours. <laughs> okay, it's a, it's there a, you go. It's a friendly. There we it's go. It's a friendly group we have here. <laughs> and see, and I can see, of course, we also have uh, what I would call the Bofer factor. You know, I mean, Bofer. <laughs> Can you see Bofer sitting around in a prison and not doing anything? Or what about, isn't one of them, which one is it? Who, aren't, isn't one of them supposed to be like a, a wily thief character with oh, yeah. shady background who presumably uh, should uh, be able to pick locks? Nori. Nori? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, yeah, is it? Yeah, no, it is no, Nori. Nori. Yeah, because Ori is the, Ori is the, like, Young and right. sensitive and one. Dory's the brother. Yeah, the and brother. and Dory's the older one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's Nori. Um, Nori of the of the tripartite hair, right? Is is that the? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ninja star hair. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a colonial three corner hat, except vertical. But anyway. Um, uh, yeah. So. Um, Right. So, so basically, that is to say, uh, again, further to defend B, uh, Trish, would be that not, it's not just a question of Thorin's leadership and his leadership style, but the way in which the characters of the dwarves have been developed. The dwarves themselves are, strong are much stronger characters. And so, therefore, given the personalities of the dwarves as we have met them and the descriptions that we have faithfully read in the iPad app, um, we <laughs> have reason to think that the dwarves are not just going to sit around and not try to do anything. Passively. So it's easier to imagine yeah. somebody like Bofer being like, hey, I've got a wild idea. You know, let's do this. Or, or you know, hey, Bilbo, like, break me out of this and we'll figure something out together. Like, that's... We could totally, I, I could totally imagine a like Bilbo Bofer buddy sequence there with the, with the, uh, um, with, and in fact, I'm, I'm sort of remembering now the, that, that picture, Trish, you were referring to, the picture of the dwarves sticking out of the barrels in the stack there in the, in the wine cellars. And uh, Bofer is very prominent in that picture, as I recall. Yeah, that's um, right, he is. So, um, anyway, I don't know. Now, you know. again, now we can go, we can go up up the stairs which is that with all of this you know a much more proactive dwarves potentially that we have in the movie it still doesn't preclude there then being some kind of an elven component no. in which case no. a and b are completely out and dave rules the day yep yep um uh yes yes um uh this yep. is this is definitely going to be one of the scenes that I'm most curious about. This whole breaking it, out piece is going to be really a. I mean, it will be very interesting. I wonder how I much agree. he's going to show. You know, he's going to show a clip on Sunday at his big event. Um, it'll be interesting to see if there's any scenes from this particular part. Yeah, of the story. I I think we're going to get a I think we're going to get some some insights into some of these questions. Probably so. Um, it'll be interesting to see how many of our uh, how many of our questions get answered, or at least. And here um, is if, if you see here, Michael Lucero has given us a. By the way, a, uh, yep. a, a, I'm just doing a it link. here. Are you doing that to the photo? Yeah. There it is. There it is. There we go. Yep. Yep. Yeah, That's what prominent. I remembered. Both are very <laughs> prominent. That's exactly what I remembered. Very prominent. Yep. Yep. Um, now, the interpretation of the look on his face is uh, um, difficult. I think it could be, come on, come on, hurry up. 
Come on, don't right. don't lag. Get in your barrel. Or it could be a him as spokesperson of the uncomfortable dwarves too. Oh, that's true. Um, you know that 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 expression could totally be. You want me to do what? Th- right. Exactly. This is this is ridiculous. Um, this is a stupid idea. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, let's see. I should go. I am up against a time commitment yep. here. So yep. I'm, I'm resting up. One quick note, James Nesbitt said that in the he thinks that he's hoping that in the extended edition of this movie that the song that he's he he did the music for will be included that Bofer sings. And uh listeners who are more attentive than I am to some of the stuff coming out of Jackson's camp is apparently he sings the Man in the Moon song from The Lord of the Rings. What? Yeah. The Man in the Moon song. So, yeah, the one that Frodo sings in in the Yeah. So wow, that... That's interesting. That's, you know, because some folks had pointed me to the fact that they've seen it like in a teeny tiny clip, you know, that they could tell the words he was saying. Anyway, he said that he sung the song and that it got filmed, but it got dropped from the theater version. So he's hoping he'll see it in the extended edition. So there's a little carrot for us. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, well, uh, fascinating. That would be very interesting. Uh, before we go, uh, one little plug. Uh, last episode we were talking about uh, Yana's idea, we had a little discussion with Yana about his idea of doing a a simultaneous Lord of the Rings film viewing Um, they have created a Facebook page which I've put up here, a casual 12 hour stroll through Middle Earth refresh your screen, I want you to refresh your screen screen because I want you to see what activity has been happening while we've been on this, see the three right there alright, there we go da-da excellent, excellent up to 15 up to 15, so there we are (laughs) Um, so this is the new Facebook page, so I invite you guys to, you know, anyone who is interested in taking part uh, in this simultaneous viewing and discussion uh, of the Lord of the Rings films uh, that Yana is facilitating um, should go, uh, should like this Facebook page and uh, be involved in the discussions here. They're going to start scheduling and, um, uh, and working that stuff out pretty soon, so this should be... Uh, this should be a lot of fun. So I wanted to make sure to give a plug for that. Uh, and uh, thanks for joining us today, everybody. This was, a, this was a fun discussion. We will look forward to moving on maybe to Lake Town next time, maybe looking at uh, some other theme, maybe having an emergency episode following if uh, Jackson reveals anything too shocking this weekend. We'll see. Um, but, uh, we'll, uh, uh, but but anyway, we look forward to getting back to our regular schedule soon. So thanks very much for everybody's flexibility and our schedule changes, and we will look forward to uh, seeing you guys again next time uh, for our next Riddles in the Dark episode. So thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>